Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today, we have an awesome quadruple header for you. We're going to be taking one last look at Inferno number one before turning our attention to double coverage of Inferno number two. Then we're going to be taking a look at the two most recent entries in the death of Doctor Strange. Kicking things off is a combined room focusing on Inferno one and two, and a lot of the connections between the two issues. It was hard to miss how Inferno 2 informed Inferno 1 in a really dynamic way, and we wanted to take another look at that material with an understanding of where the series was going to be headed. After that, we give another look at issue 2 from another perspective. One of our core crews, our Jade team, Josh, Arturo, Drew, and Evelyn, and we hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome to another segment of Exodus for Podcast where we talk about mutants, magic, and Marvel week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at DazzlerWayAWA on Twitter and Instagram. Hey everyone, I am Robbie, and you can find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. Hello, it's me, and uh, my name is Steve. You can find me on Twitter <laughs> at HowdyDuda. HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I'm Nico. You guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and you can find me hiding in my no place getting real angry right and, and i guess we have like moira all over the place again now and i'm psyched for it and i guess that means we're talking about inferno one and two right now so these two issues have probably been the two issues i've been most excited about about x-men comics recently this has a feeling of importance almost not quite to the hoxbox level but almost to that same point for me so just two issues in like where are we at with everything overall i can see why things are going to burn now yes i feel very vindicated because uh i have been saying all along people are like how dare you want mystique to burn down Gracoa? everybody will die you'll have burning babies is that what you want and i would like everybody is being so hyperbolic here all i want <laughs> is for mystique to overturn this oppressive structure that is running Krakoa for Krakoans and forge something better and i'm very glad that that is exactly what is happening here there's absolutely zero arson i knew that was coming all y'all know it there's no arson yeah. it's just good no. stuff She's like, fuck the system, and I'm here for it. Yeah, there could be some arson coming up, and that's fine. I can do it with a little arson, but as long as Kirko is fine. My only concern is that Raven is choosing to burn down this structure to create something better, as opposed to, you know, being Raven and burning down the structure to burn down the structure. I have some concerns that she's really only in it for Raven, and not thinking about the vacuum that will be created by the absence of power. Well, is right? there going to be an absence of power when she's filling it already? Like, you know, she's yeah. already pulling in Destiny, uh, Colossus, of all things. That's but not that's, a, it, but... that's sort of assuming everyone's going to accept Mystique's new world order. Yeah. 
I definitely don't think that everybody's going to be super in favor of that. Obviously, Mystique does things for Mystique. Mystique also does things for Irene, though. And yes. Irene often has a clearer picture of what the future holds. And that's one thing that's very interesting um, now, because like for the longest, her main motivation has always been trying to bring back Destiny for what? Like, I don't know, decades now? <laughs> <laughs> so now it's really interesting like now that de we see destiny it's kind of like it's like a huge shift now in mystique's character absolutely it is we even see that mentioned here on the page where you know irene and mystique meet again for the first time in decades and when irene just asked her like what has happened to you like what have you become you know the the decades since irene died mystique has been criminally misused by writers yeah i will say absolutely people have just leaned into her being the absolute worst self she could possibly be just super selfish when everybody tells me that mystique is a fundamentally unredeemable selfish person i know that they were reading mo modern mystique comics yep. mm -hmm. and now that irene is back there is opportunity for her to re rediscover the person that she was which was never like a good person but was a person who cared about mutants first and foremost she joined freedom force to protect the mutants closest to her when mystique has been written with destiny she is more of a morally flexible character who is trying to achieve a greater good you know she's definitely an ends justify the means type of person and her she's always had that goal when she's with destiny to avoid the futures that were seen in destiny's diaries so yeah. they they put a lot of that so definitely during the freedom force run she was more of a maybe anti-hero than a villain at that point and anytime they bring back any destiny element into it they always add into the fact that she's always like when they introduce the diaries they she's always always talked about you know how they worked to better mutant kind like even even trying to kill senator kelly yes wasn't to just be bad it was trying to avoid the dark future that they could see coming brilliant yes uh because that was a great example of like mystique does things for herself but she is a mutant and she remembers that so she does things for mutants because that is doing things for herself killing senator kelly or the attempted assassination of senator kelly was an obvious you know attempt to do something that would damage her own her own life at you know what she thought would be helping mutants unfortunately the implications of that story were that destiny had an incomplete view of the future so what does that mean for inferno <laughs> And I think one of the things is, you know, I hear people say that Mystique can't be redeemed sometimes, and I'm like, are we reading the same Mystique? Because even when they make her do nightmarish things, they still pepper in things like the BKV series from 20 years ago, and I know that's 20 years ago. Some people are very hung up on her throwing Nightcrawler away, which I have to point out all the time is a lot more complicated than anybody likes to say on the timeline. <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, she is definitely a character who has over a hundred years of life experience. I mean, you know, her major love affair was with a demon. So like, let's just consider was that, it, she, uh, you know, wasn't just didn't didn't Raven and Destiny hook up like their history, like they're like, oh, right. Yeah, they've, yeah, it's all been removed. Or, and she was with Logan before all of that. Didn't so ever happened, though. <laughs> I, I mean, we're stuck with him, I think. <laughs> I mean, you got to remember Mystique and Destiny even hung out with Logan in World War Two. Oh, no, in, the, in yes. like the Gold Rush before yeah. that. Yeah, even the, in the Gold Rush, too. But even in World War Two, they did because of that stupid uh, Chris Claremont true, X-Men True Friends story that got put out. Which Hey, why stupid? Very cute. Cute and harmless. Harmless and dumb. Dumb and there. I guess it oh. existed. I spent money on it. I have it. Why are you calling it? It's dumb. Listen, oh. it's very fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's just like everybody looks so good in that series. They do. I agree. 
It's very high. It's like uh, the the Ben Grimm and Logan series. Everything's real pretty. No, the only reason that I find it a little out there is the fact that Kate Pride was hanging out with a young Queen Elizabeth when she was like, it's a little out there. Yeah, super dumb. <laughs> All right, um, but yeah, so Mystique's always been that flawed character. I will say, I think one thing that is kind of like influencing people's thoughts on her being irredeemable is because unfortunately uh, a lot of people first watched like a lot of the movies and with Destiny never being in them they never really got to see mm. that like soft side I guess. How many people just assume that the movies are adaptations of the comics so they think that's the origin of Mystique she's just like hey guys I'm Mystique and then she's suddenly like hey guys I'm Mystique Mystique, Hunger Games, and then she's like, hey guys, I'm Mystique, I'm out of here. If, if people yeah. think Mystique is irredeemable because they watch the X-Men films from the Fox company, then I don't know what films they think they watched, because or that is not think the impression Yeah, that, that Mystique died the most heroic death I've ever seen, like a Mystique ever die. Yeah, and Rebecca Remain's Mystique is like, just cool as shit. Heavenly <laughs> not, epic. Not, like, there's certainly been comics uh, that portray a, a mystique that is irredeemable. I just choose not to see those comics. And I'm not talking about the ones with Nightcrawler because, again, that is a much more complicated si- situation than anybody is willing to admit in public, clearly. But, like, there are those, like, non-consensual issues with Mystique and Wolverine, uh, yeah. which I choose to just ignore because they have no impact on anything constructive for the X-Men fandom, but nasty. <laughs> and they never come back, so I think that Marvel Editorial has also forgot about them, so we can all just move on from that one. We get to the big reveal in the end of issue one. After all of Moira's and Charles' machinations, they still can't stop the resurrection of Destiny. Um, When we get into it, into issue two, we do see that Destiny has been resurrected as a gift from her wife to as a much younger woman. What did we think about first that reveal when we first read it? And then uh, the reveal of Destiny actually being alive after Charles and Magneto went through so much trouble. And then also, too, the fact that she's been so de-aged so when i first saw her reveal i was like oh they're doing this this early okay that's that's unexpected but cool when they revealed what actually happened what was it like five days prior or something like that i felt a little more uncomfortable the whole de-aging i mean it, it makes sense in the era of Krakoa where they are allowing for physical manipulation during the resurrection protocols. I get it. But at the same time, we're losing out on having an older hero, I guess. Right. And that, that kind of sucks. Watching Mystique's actions to get to that point explains a whole lot of other stuff going on in, in Krakoa lately and that I like but yeah I'm I'm uncomfortable with the the de-aging I yeah I uh, was really excited for old lady destiny to pop back up she is some of the only representation of old lady supervillains in comics who like rock I'm (laughs) sorry horticulture not you are not it compared to destiny (laughs) yeah I don't know I was excited to see old lady destiny back um, and I think it's a unfortunate 
fortunate choice to make her just a young hot woman again. I think, on the other hand, it is interesting that she looks exactly like Blindfold, and I think it is really nice to see Mystique uh, be horny. I I think lesbians should be horny for each other in comics. I'm happy for them for that, so mixed blessing. And, you know, I think I'm just most shocked that it wasn't a fake out that early on. I just could not believe that we were all like, I really thought, oh, and we're going to see that this is a psychic projection. We're going to see this as something. And then ultimately, it really was just destiny. I think the de-aging thing is a sign of things Mystique wants, maybe clouding her judgment a little bit. Mm. But I mean, it's nice for Destiny. Destiny has mobility, right? But <laughs> it's, it's also nice to have like disabled characters in media. Yeah. And it also should have been Destiny's choice. Destiny should have been brought back and given the it's opportunity so to be brought back better if she chose, or you know, improve. However, you want to look at it. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I think. Uh, I was definitely, like, thrown off a little bit, because I did expect her to still be older Destiny. I'm very curious, like, why they made that decision. Uh, yeah, that's that's the vibe. I really dug it. Destiny has very quickly become my favorite uh, X-Men. Again, just all she had to do was walk back into a comic. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I had one quick question. Yeah. When she, what year was it when she, like, originally, like, died? Like, you uh, 89 or 90? Yeah. It was, it was well, in the late 80s, around it for now. So, like, it's like, I don't know, like... <laughs> So for me, it's just very surreal to like kind of see like Destiny in like a modern comp. Cause like, I don't know, like for my life, she's kind of just been dead the whole time. Okay. So it's just very like, so I don't know, it's like very surreal to kind of like finally see her with the right. X Men when she's yeah. always kind of like in my head been kind of like sort of like a memory of the other characters well guys i uh i just did some looking up because i i'm listening to you and i'm like yeah the fuck so she first appeared in january of 1981 in uncanny x-men 141 days of future past part one she would go on to have appearances throughout 81 82 83 84 85 wow i guess i'm just gonna have to read every year she has sparse appearances through all of these titles before ultimately passing away in December of 1989 in Uncanny 255. She would go on to have, um, oh my God, guys, she's had more appearances dead than she ever had alive. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that's what happens when you're a spooky person who reads the future. You just, <laughs> yeah, you just was, ghost most of your life. That was <laughs> always just the thing about Destiny is she ever since she's died she's been used more as a plot point so it's hard for us to remember the mystique of that time because that mystique hasn't existed for so long and that's why mystique obviously destiny's death affected mystique greatly and changed her personality and it changed her motivations so it's kind of nice to see that return going to be it's going to be kind of nice to hopefully see that return to that mystique of that era who was the the strong champion for mutants and not just for herself on that for the de-aging it was a big sticking point i loved how steve was like she looks just like blindfold because i was like oh okay cool that makes a lot of sense 
And that like yeah, kind of got and... me to turn on it. Because before then, I was just like, why the fuck is she like 20 years old or whatever, however, however old she is? I was like, I, I at least wanted her to be like in her 50s or something. Because we need that. I do think we need that representation of a stronger, older woman character that we don't ever really get to see. And just the fact that one of the first strong, older women character, yes, Mystique's older, but her shape-shifting abilities don't allow her to show that. So like, I just wanted to see that portrayal of a strong, older woman character because media tends to wash them away. Yeah. It makes me wonder if that's why Hickman introduced horticulture. Because if he was going to take away an old lady, he'll give us four. Yeah, but it's not a replacement. And like, yeah. in addition to Charles Xavier walking again, 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 you know, I mean, Charles again, Xavier's again, never again. been like the best representation for disabled people because he absolutely hates his disability and gets rid of it at every chance he can. Yeah. But like, you know, Destiny 2 now. And it's, I mean, like, yes, hard culture are all, or there's one in chairs, but like, man, they kind of, they kind of blow. <laughs> <laughs> I was that's why given what this era has done that's why I was pleasantly surprised when Shan got resurrected she kept her leg so she didn't keep she kept her uh, robotic leg and didn't have her real leg grown back because I loved that she was able to accept that her disability is part of her and that's how she wanted to come back because it's a part of her yeah Forge keeps his stuff around you yeah. know that too Moira's machinations in her different life obviously are going to start catching up to her we did get to see in Inferno 1 a revisitation of that scene that we got from her death in life too so what did we think about the reconceptualization of that scene and where are we at with it it's my favorite scene in inferno <laughs> that's just so great i we we talked about this at length in our lost episode um <laughs> but like there's just that scene where i mean this this was like an absolutely killer scene when it first showed up in Hoxbox uh to begin with but like i love the i love the extra bits i love the 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 part that it was completely gone from moira's telling of the story because moira's like oh yeah yeah it was really dramatic and then she killed me but in this, there's the part that Moira left out, which is the part where Destiny's like, I know you'll listen to me, but you are flawed and you're going to fuck up. Eventually, the stress is going to get to you. And whose side will you really be on when it comes down to your last life, your true survival? Are, will you side with the mutants or will you say, will you take the easy route and go against your own kind in order to survive? And that is so necessary. And I know that we I know that we talked about it briefly, but like the change of the who want, I don't want to die line. Because yes. in, in the original, Destiny is just like, when, when she says, I don't want to die like this, um, Destiny says like, oh, dying like this is what you get. That's what you deserve for a life badly lived. And I love that when Destiny's telling the story, it's just, I don't want to die. And Destiny just says, who does? <laughs> <laughs> but Pyro's still with his yes mother. <laughs> yeah, they kept that. <laughs> Apparently that was important. <laughs> I also think there's something to be said about the need to demystify Moira. One of the things that was done so smartly was by keeping the sanctity of Moira sort of in a Miller Electra under the promise of Machio kind of way. By keeping Moira so sacred, this immediately raises the stakes on the situation because ultimately so far we've seen a bunch of very private conversations. Normally we would call this kind of boring, but instead it's been this escalation of our own anxiety by continuously using the puzzle pieces sparingly and cleverly. And I think by making Eric and Charles kind of the fools to these different, like kind of the jesters to these queens playing this game of court. It's just a really fascinating way to reinterpret who's actually been playing the pieces so far. 
sort of mentioning Eric and Charles in relation to Moira, what did everybody think about the, I don't know, is it a sort of betrayal, but the, the betrayal of Eric and Charles against Moira by tracking Moira? Like, how did everybody feel about that? I personally will say I had never been more pissed at Eric and Charles ever. <laughs> I was uh, like, this is yeah. gross. Well, but can I ask a question? Yeah. Do we think Moira's not tracking them? I don't think she is. I think she was so fucking surprised by this. I mean, she's obviously watching, you know, the Sage communication network and stuff like that. But she, like, clearly didn't think of something as underhanded as this. As much as Moira has had a lot of lifetimes of experience, she does not have Charles Xavier's sliminess. <laughs> you know Charles came up with this one. I guess I just think that she's probably... I do think she's tracking them. I think she's oh, just well. surprised they came up with it. I think, like, she was just like, I can't believe you would use our games on me. Uh, Unacceptable. I think she was... <laughs> Moira guy. I'm pro Moira, but, like... She's definitely, like, physically violated by it. And I think yeah. that's more of what it is than the tracking, you know? Yeah, I, I for sure. She's angry at being found out that she's, like, you know, she's trying to do stuff that she doesn't want them to see, obviously. But, like, also the fact that they put it in her tea, like, all that time ago, and just, like, wow, nasty. I mean, given the stuff that they've done in the past, I'm not shocked that they came up with that. It is unfortunate. I mean, I, I do get why she would be a little pissed, but, yeah. It's gross. It almost gives off a feel of they are keeping her captive instead of her willingly hiding from the rest of the world. They, um, they have been taking her agency, right? Y- yes. Yeah. So I understand... Uh, <sighs> I understand how she feels about their actions towards her. I think that issue two kind of changes that a little bit with the way that she is portrayed there, though. Okay, that's fair. Um, Because in issue one, it feels like she is being taken advantage of, whereas in issue two, once they reveal that Destiny is back, it's she's switched over to a mode of how could you let this happen? I told you that this couldn't happen and you still let it happen. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm with Kyle. I, I don't disagree that her agency has been taken, but I feel as though we keep saying there's things she wanted to do that she didn't want them to see. I don't believe there is anything she would let them do that she does not see. And I feel like she wants their agency too. I'm not pro yeah. taking away her agency, but she is absolutely trying to do the same things to them and then just being mad that they're doing it to her. I think that my favorite thing about Inferno is the thing that Hickman does, which is that these are all bad people. We're, we're, sometimes we get caught up in like taking sides and being like, oh, well, Moira's right or Destiny's right or Charles is right. I mean, obviously, I'm over here being like Mystique is right. But that's that's all that's all untrue. Many things can be bad at once. Absolutely, Charles and Eric are being misogynist um, and extremely patriarchal, extremely ex- like condescending, gross. to Moira <laughs> in a way that is not acceptable, regardless of hypocrisy. Moira has her own sins uh, that she is having played out across the course of the series, and I firmly don't believe that she has mutants' best interests at heart at this point. Like she may at this point, it's highly questionable, and the same is true of all of these actors in play even the ones that are getting introduced like colossus uh but it's it's important to keep in mind going forward i think that yeah like there is not a good side here there is like 
everybody has Krakoa's best interest at heart to a level, and everybody has their own interests at heart to another level. And the varying degrees of that are going to play out in conflict. But definitely, I, I don't think that there's a side that we're supposed to take. I don't think that we're supposed to be like, oh yeah, this is actually the, the good person here, and it might be revealed later. I think that they are all just taking advantage of each other, one after another. If the things that have happened are things that have been permissed by Moira, does that mean Moira said it's okay for Apocalypse to leave the board? Or was the end of Ten of was the end of Ten of Swords the first real oops in her plan? Were there ten she, Ten of Swords before this? I don't think she is nearly as in control of the situation as mm-hmm. a, a lot of us have assumed. She has broad strokes, you know. As people have pointed out, when she was with Apocalypse in the future, his children were back, so clearly they did the Ten of Swords, or a version of the Ten of Swords probably played out differently, I would imagine, in that in that timeline, since that was the one where Apocalypse had already killed Charles and Magneto himself. Yes. So mm-hmm. th- things are so wildly different that I don't think Moira can predict anything with a degree of certainty, except for that she knows that some conditions have to be met. And the thing is like the Nimrod condition is a condition that has to be met. The destiny condition is a condition that she wants everybody to think has to be met, but is actually just, she doesn't want destiny interfering with her work. It has, I don't think that has anything to do with how the future has to play out. Although she's definitely tried to imply that to Charles and Eric. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It The destiny thing, it definitely feels like a instance of she doesn't want one of the precogs to know that she is there and and that no matter what, mutants lose. Yeah, and she doesn't want the one who burned her to death to come back and do it again. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. I don't think she cares about the other precogs, actually, as much as she claims to. My thing with the Destiny and Moira situation is, yeah, I think there is some resentment for the way she died in life, too. But I, there's there's got to be something that is going on in Moira's plan that Destiny would interfere with. And personally, I'm almost feeling like Moira maybe is trying to plan rebuilding the cure if she gets to the point where she's satisfied with how this life is so like if if she were to rebuild the the cure then that's when destiny would step in and remember everything and try to stop her and if destiny is around to do that then she won't be able to finish her in-game plan I think yeah. I think I thought that the problem is that every precog is going to see that mutants will always lose and Moira wants to have a, an attempt where the mutants have a chance to win and I think Destiny's comment of who will you choose is when Moira sees it's getting too hard and she's not going to have an easy time winning this life she's going to make herself human. Yeah, well and I think that that's that's a possibility but we've also I've, there have some really galaxy brain takes on Twitter and I'm very sorry that I cannot now remember who first put this idea into my head but it is really smart and it's the idea that she's just she wants the cure just to turn herself human so that this timeline doesn't get erased if this is the one that works right oh wow i think nathan was referring to that that's what that's what i was referring to that's amazing yeah but yeah no that's 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 very charitable (laughs) towards Moira. And there's echoes of it when Moira visits Muir Island, right? So she's got the pages for that team that helped come up with this cure and life too, as well. So there's there's a lot of foreshadowing of it. Now, maybe they'll take a different direction because they don't want to like have everything just be what it seems like it's going to. But that's really, especially with the with a book that they took out any interaction between Rogue and Destiny because there wasn't space for it, that base to being taken up had to have served an important purpose. 
Mm, yeah, I think so. All right. So these two issues see us have a big status quo shift in Krakoa. So we are given a new Captain Commander in a beautiful scene where Scott hands it over to Bishop. We are giving a new great captain in, in canon. And then we are also, at the end of issue two, introduced to our newest to Actually, we have two new members of the council. Issue one gives us uh, Destiny being introduced in the vote in issue two. And at the very end of it, Colossus is introduced as the last member of the silent council so where are we with these changes in the krakowan government do we think they are going to secure it <laughs> is it going to prop it up more i am very afraid of what's going on especially with what happened with Piotr in x-force I'm, I'm very afraid of where this is going and what this is going to foretell for the island yeah not, not good <laughs> yeah i am absolutely astounded that they chose Colossus for this position and everything about his situation puts me on edge specifically because he's compromised just specifically because we have multiple telepaths on the council who who didn't notice that I mean, I understand that there have been some pretty gross things with telepaths forcing information out of his mind in the past, so I can understand them not wanting to check prior to voting him in, but at the same time, if somebody's going to be in charge of your nation, you kind of want to know, and you have the ability to vet them, wouldn't you want to do that? You know, and I think the problem is why I love that it's Colossus is because he is a super duper, I'm trying to think about the right way to put it. Colossus is such a manipulable pawn who always gets super upset at whatever you put in front of him and he's reactionary more than he is thoughtful. Yeah. So he really is the perfect tool to throw off what Destiny's planning. And I think that, well, we have to know how far ahead Destiny can see, but I do think Colossus is the right monkey wrench in regard to his unpredictability. In some ways, I do fear that if... Moira sees that Destiny is going to burn this all down, you know, what she's built, then she'll burn it down herself first. And I do think that is a concern. I was definitely shocked with the choice with Colossus. I definitely agree with what you guys said. I will <laughs> I will say, though, in this whole situation, I might be biased, but I feel like the only bitch that I trust is Emma Frost. Um, in I... regards of... Well, well, I'm biased. I'm biased. I was shocked, but like I like it because it's something very unpredictable that I didn't mm -hmm. expect. Like I wouldn't never expected Colossus to join the council this whole entire time. And especially after that last X Force issue, I was like, "What?" I lo I love that that is what got thrown in there. Honestly, like the mo the the fact that X Force has become relevant again to the rest <laughs> of the is mm -hmm. awesome for me as an X Force reader. This issue that very much upset me is going to play a, a very pivotal role in Inferno and Krakoa going forward now that we know there's a mind-controlled Colossus on the team. Uh, man, I don't know. Just, Inferno's wild, man. It's gonna be a wild ride. <laughs> Nathan, you kicked this all off by saying it's almost as important as House and Powers, but I think in many ways it is absolutely as important as House and Powers. It right. might not give us the protocols, right. but I think we can say the Civil War had as much impact as the Revolutionary War. Like, I feel like like, this really still is such a significant turning point, and it is such a dynamic 
it's just such a dynamic change because one of the things that the Krakoan Age promised is mutants are all best friends. And here we have some some real infighting amongst the popular kids. And uh, we're getting to a real save by the bell kind of place with the uh, the amount of social infighting. This is actually where I think mutants should have been since the beginning of, since the end of Hoxbox, because like, yeah. mm-hmm. not to directly contradict, but Hoxbox did not promise us that they were all going to be best friends. Uh, it did promise that they were going to have community unity, but like inviting Apocalypse was always a way of saying like, you're still going to be Apocalypse, but we are going to find common ground. Like, I totally get what you're saying, right? But like, Inferno is the necessary and the super obvious, like thing that should have come out of Hoxpox because like all right we have unity among our kind we're all here working together for the common good uh do we all agree on what that path forward is raise your hand if you agree and absolutely nobody would agree like apocalypse agreed because it was going to get him what he needed right yep. his kids, yeah. because it's what he always wanted very few mutants probably uh, agree on the best way go- going forward with Krakoa that really was the promise of Hoxpox and why I love this in that respect too was that it's so real no no diverse community of you know we'll just say like you know we'll equate mutants to lgbtqia right there's never going to be a way that everybody in the community is going to agree with the way to go forward in the future and you see all the factions fighting to get power i it, it's so real in how krakoa is having this go like i could see it happening in real life something like this yeah and in the way that like ten of swords i've on record ten of swords is like my favorite crossover since inferno since the original inferno but like this is something else Inferno is like, as Nico said, it is Hoxbox level. It is lightning in a bottle. It is extremely dynamic. It is going to have incredible consequences going forward. Whatever continues to happen, it already has. And each page just keeps bringing the the pain. (laughs) So one thing I never expected to be so invested in with any story, especially with the story, because it wasn't where I saw it going, but I'm so glad we got there, is the political scheming that Mystique went through to get destiny's vote for me that was this next level shit that you don't even see in comics ever what where were you guys with everything that happened on that i really loved that it brought in a lot of kind of other ideas i love a lot of non-superhero comics And I love this idea that you can bring in the political machinations. You know, one of the things that's really hard is there's so many, so many of our counterculturists have all turned out to be um, garbage pail fires. And so it's kind of hard to bring something up without being like trans met, right? Um, You know, so you wind up in a situation where it's tough to talk about some stuff. But while the actual ending of the work itself is deeply troubling and problematic for me, I do think there's a lot to be said for how this kind of mirrors some of the magic of Ex Machina by Brian K. Vaughan and Tony Harris, where the political ideology of the book is a humongous part of what moves the book forward and propels the story. And I think what we're seeing are these like really intimate moments of honesty in both intent and politics that you're right. It's just so rare to see in this kind of comic without question. Uh, yeah, uh, this is actually, this is my favorite kind of comic. When I when I read non-superhero comics, it's comics like this. And it's it's sometimes Jonathan Hickman comics. So <laughs> this is uh, this is just like really exciting for me. I'm, I am not the kind of person who needs punches in my superhero comics. I am the kind of person who needs interpersonal drama and romance and 
people being really catty with each other in public. I <laughs> I honestly lived for Destiny coming out and doing her little dance up to the seat and then just throwing it at everybody's faces. I could I could do with an entire run of that. Oh yeah, give me all the Destiny sachet. <laughs> yeah, X Men number four, the Jonathan Hickman one, not the Duggan one. One of my favorite comics of recent memory. Just a lot of fun. And they all they did was eat a fancy dinner that probably did not fill Apocalypse up. Oh gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Watermelon gazpacho. I'm sorry, sounds delicious, but that guy needs some mutton. <laughs> and uh, I definitely uh, love the way that Mystique was trying to get to vote for everyone because it really just shows you how well she knows people on the island. <laughs> I kind of liked how she played Shaw against Emma against Shaw. That was so is, that, is that the is that the right direction? Uh, Shaw against Emma. It was <laughs> yeah. Shaw against Emma. Yeah. yeah. That only works if if Sean goes first. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So so she was very lucky that that's what happened. Mm-hmm. I also need to know what is in the box. It's right, 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 right. Yeah. I don't know what is going on with Emma. She's got the the whole Logic Diamonds thing that she did or did not order. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what it was. What what do you, what do you think it was? Uh, I have no idea. I don't think it's the Logic Diamonds because the Logic Diamonds were found on that Arakan's ship that Logan boarded. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not, honestly, the only thing that I can think of is some kind of jewelry. <laughs> yeah. Like a Fabergé egg. I've been thinking that it has to be something of key significance in some big way. Mm. I feel like it's something we don't have the pieces for yet. Yeah. I feel like she's trying to get her hands on whatever the next storyline is. Yeah. And I, I, you know, that's silly, but like, you know, this is whatever next year's Hellfire Gala is. Because don't forget, we know as a fact next year there is a Hellfire Gala. And it's we were told Emma's so big going forward from these yeah. covers. I have, yeah. two, mm-hmm. I have two Inferno issues, and both of them have Emma on the cover right now. And so. they just released a bunch more Inferno covers with Emma. Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, we need to consider that whatever Emma's doing, she is taking the next step forward for the line while this is continuing out this story. But there's also a number of other things that I think. Because we know what's coming next, in some ways, I feel like some of Inferno is a little bit damaged. You know, one of the things I love is that after Devil's Reign, Daredevil is taking a couple of months off so that the book can get ahead of the solicits, Mm. more or less. Mm -hmm. I don't like knowing that Sabretooth is coming out of the hole. I I like it because I've been waiting for it forever, but that's just a personal preference. Oh God, you've been talking about that for forever, ever. I would rather not at this point. Having these conversations on X Twitter is extremely tiring. <laughs> I yeah, I feel you though. It's such a spoiler. Yeah, it's such a spoiler. That's my my frustration. Yeah. Like. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with Creed coming back. I actually, I like my Creed trying to pretend to be Wolverine really badly. I don't want him to actually try to be Wolverine. I want him when he's like pretending to be Wolverine and we never know when he's going to start killing people. That's sort of my Creed, unfortunately. But um, I very much just wish I did not know that that's how fundamentally this is all being shaken up, especially because Sabretooth and Mystique have a child and a romantic history and you know a much longer criminal history and so it's very complicated it's important to remember too that mystique was the leader of the team that uh sabertooth was on when he got sent to the pit and she very much was telling him at the time like you fucked this up man like i told you not to do this she was a part of that team so she is inevitably a part of the real bullshit that went on when xavier and magneto damned him to the pit you know 
for sure. Solicits have done that in the last few years. They they have sort of ruined the shape of the stories coming out organically. Because the biggest thing I can remember uh, recently was X-Men Gold 30, The Wedding. How they had to reveal before the issue came out because they had to release the solicits for Mr. and Mrs. X. So they had to kind of ruin the whole issue that Peter and Kitty weren't going to get married. And that Rogue and Gambit did in that issue because they had to release the solicits. For me, there was one vote that didn't make any sense because this character has a long history history trying to decipher destiny's diaries so like for me kate's vote uh as no against destiny Ooh, i got that one seemed very off for me does anybody have any ideas about that and why that would go yes uh i, I like that you're yes period <laughs> yes period it's for me it's because <laughs> the last time kate pride saw destiny kate pride was a 13 year old who watched destiny burn a bunch of people to death in front of her mm. she was one of the first major villains that kate ever met outside of emma and uh the very last time she saw her was uh, a lot of trauma it was just like a ton of you know there was the days of future past storyline the yeah. constant freedom force when they came and took magneto from the holocaust memorial that they were both oh, at together yeah. there's just like no good associations with destiny destiny's always been a terrifying force in like a very young cape pride's life so i absolutely like this is the first time she's seen her since she came back regardless of the hunt for the diaries so i can totally see her being like uh-uh no way you were like the like like how cyclops spent until 2018 being hateful of magneto because magneto's the man who tried to kill him a bunch of times as a teenager i feel mm. like that's that's why i got that one but it's okay. interesting that you thought that was strange is it is it because of did you think she would support her because of the diaries? Yeah, just because she spent so much time right before she got shipped off during Revolution. She spent so much time studying the diaries, trying to figure out what was going on in them. And then later on, when the diaries came back, she was a caretaker for them when nobody else was. So I, for me, she became really associated with that. And I thought the way she found it, it was just like fated to be. I mean, obviously it was fated to be because Destiny was like, hey, look in here, Kitty, you know, in this picture frame, that's where my diary is. But that that's why it was surprising to me. I think I'm with Steve, maybe for a slightly different reason. But I feel like when Kitty Pride was a part of finding those diaries, what's publishing 30 years ago so story-wise six or seven years ago i think she was at a very different place in her life and i feel like she was looking for a, a purpose we saw her change teams we saw her change lives we saw her go back and forth a lot and you know some of that's bad writing but some of that we can recontextualize as she was in a place of uncertainty and i think where she's at now kate pride wants no false prophet and I think Destiny reading the future automatically makes this another one of those goddamn magic X-Men missions where you got to worry about destiny and future and the one and that never goes well for any X-Man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I thought I thought the most interesting vote was Kurtz, but I also understand it because he's 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 trying to be the, the better person that Mystique cannot be. And he's reaching for charity. You know, the man is choosing mercy over severity. And I, I, I think that's like a really cool note for Kurt. I know people sometimes read that as like trying to get Mystique's approval. That's not what it is. Don't mistake his kindness for weakness. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that he is doing it because it is the right thing to do, regardless of personal feelings. That is just how he's always been. Not spiteful. I can't imagine Kurt Buckner being spiteful, to be perfectly honest. Oh, gosh. He doesn't have that bone in his body anymore. Yeah. Yeah. If he voted no on this, I would have been, like, completely shocked, honestly. Especially now that he's made up all of those bamfs. 
Uh, is he? No, but that was one of my favorite things ever when he temporarily came back made of Bamfs. That's like one of the greatest <laughs> storylines of all time. At all. Yeah. That's how he came back from the dead that in Amazing um, X Men. All oh of the God. demon Bamfs that um, had been running around the school reformed into one giant Nightcrawler body, and he came flying back into his body on a soul ship. Uh, so the Bamfs <laughs> are dead. the worst resurrection ever. No, I loved it. It was hysterically <laughs> interesting. It was what if. Because it was about his heaven and his myth that brought him back. So it was about the myth of Nightcrawler resurrecting Nightcrawler. It wasn't about Judeo-Christianity. It wasn't about any sort of he's a demon. It was the it was the it was the myth of Nightcrawler. He was a pirate in heaven, which was his form of heaven. There were no true angels. And his DNA had been used to create these little creatures, which because his DNA contains magic, there was a, a way to come back. I thought it was so much better than like when Wolverine resurrected from a drop of blood on his bones. Like it was the myth of Nightcrawler, the magic, like the the internal magic of Kurt resurrected Kurt via the need, and I just thought that was magic. Wait, with the Wolverine one, are you talking about X Men Annual? What is it? X Men Annual ten or eleven? Oh, 11. I'm talking about uh, Civil War Wolverine, where oh, he okay. fought uh, Nuke and no Nitro. He fought Nitro, and yes. he had to. He got like burned to a uh, to just his skeleton, and there was one drop of blood. And that's just, I mean, other than the beautiful Ramos art, that is not my Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the second time that has happened to him. Uh, as Nathan is mentioning, there's uh, an annual from yep. way back in the 80s. Annual 11. So that's, that's the one that solidified that Storm and Yukio are a couple to me because, like, it shows everybody their greatest desires or, like, worst desires. So, like, Storm's greatest desire was to just go live and party in Japan with Yukio. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, I want to be a Tokyo fashion assassin. And unfortunately, Rogue's secret desire was to live in plantation. So, yeah, that was nasty. Did not, <laughs> did not appreciate that. No. Uh, everybody else got really cool stuff. Yeah. Um. So that's gonna bring us to the last big point that the really big reveal of the issue of Inferno Two was that Emma Frost has been brought into. I the only thing I can even say is the Trinity of Moira, Charles, and Eric. So where are we at with Emma Frost's reaction? Where do do we think that Emma Frost very acted in a very Emma Frost way? And then where do we think this is going to drive the story to the future? So <laughs> I think Emma Frost knows like a little tiny bit more than she's letting on to them. And the reason why I think that is because wasn't it like in Marauders when she like unveiled that like the Moira McDagger hospital? Yep. And then she looked right at Charles and Eric and um for their reaction. And I don't know, it's like, I think when she was reading, like, her mind and everything, that right there, I think, was a genuine reaction. And, but I don't know, it's just, I don't know what it is, but I just feel it in my soul that she knows something that they just haven't revealed yet, and that she's been plotting something of her own currently. Yeah, there's been hints to that in things like the X-Force issues and uh, the gala. Um, I definitely think 
Emma has her own thing going on, which I like. You know, Emma should be the elevation of Emma to part of this like Illuminati is uh, like a really good move uh, for mutant kind. It's a good move for Emma. She deserves this kind of spotlight and this kind of inner access. But also Emma doesn't like think about things like these guys who work in the shadows and think they're better than everybody else. I can totally see Emma being like, all right, I'm going to tell everybody about all this. Uh, and we're just going to work together as a team on this one. Okay, guys, no more secrets. But I could also see her being part of this shadowy Illuminati because she's done that for most of her career, you know? She just broadcasts the truth to everybody. And she's like, so guys, <laughs> Thursday, 8 p.m., we're going to have a different kind of vote. Who wants to kill Xavier first? <laughs> yeah. And like- first, vote me. Her whole, like, I will never trust you again. Uh, thank, thank you. About time, Emma. Very good. Yeah, that is why I understand why this is going to be, why this is called Inferno. I don't think that it's being caused by destiny or by mystique at this point. I think it's all Ooh. Emma going to be oh. burning down the Quiet Council. Because, because... hot coals become diamonds. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very, uh, it's very cool how it's, it's definitely a burning of, it's a schism. It's a burning of relationships. It's a mm-hmm. burning of trust. Mm-hmm. And the way that she said for the children, I, I don't get the feeling that she's going to go along with, uh, their plan. I think she's going to do whatever she thinks is necessary to protect the children and all the other mutants on Krakoa, Krakoa. So I, Go ahead. That line, like, particularly, I thought was her just calling her hand out. And she's like, I know you guys have been using me this whole time for my love of the children, and I'm done with it. And, you know, I think one of the things about Emma Frost that needs to always be kept in mind is Emma Frost is a beautiful series of accidents that won't stop happening. (laughs) She's never, ever been intended to be who she is. It just keeps being Emma Frost is available, so they put her in the book. And so finally, when that finally kept and it took hold and after Astonishing, there was no question Emma Frost would ever leave again. Emma is so rarely the star of stories about Emma and she's so frequently the star of other people's stories. You know, Astonishing X-Men, it's 25 issues, is not about Emma Frost. It's about Jean Grey. It is about the vacuum of Jean Grey. Joss Whedon has said, and, you know, oh. trust nothing that comes out of his fucking mouth. But Joss I Whedon it was has... Kate Pride, so. <laughs> no, if you ask Joss Whedon, it is about specifically the vacuum created by Jean Grey. It is about oh. the events of new X-Men and the fallout that that results in. You know, Emma lucked into Age of Ultron, which pivoted her back into the Marvel Universe in a big way. The only reason she's in Age of Ultron is because Bendis killed Xavier, and Xavier and Emma have roughly the same body, so they just switched the head, legitimately, because the book wow. took too long to come out. So, because the book had been drawn two years earlier, they had to fix the art, and they just changed all of the Xavier scenes to Emma scenes. Hmm. So, Emma has lucked her way into so many stories, it's kind of about time that somebody gave Emma a big story. Like for Emma. Wow, I did not even realize that. Wow. I loved page 40 of Digital, where you see her reading the mind of uh, Moira, and it's exactly the same reaction that Charles Xavier had when he read Moira's mind back in Hotbox. So I was like, yes, I love this. And I know people on Twitter were saying like, oh, that makes him a weak. No, it, it just really shows how much thought they put into this to make the reactions exactly the same. Like, I, I love Moira, but I hate Moira now, too. I'm like, ah. Oh. 
I feel like we're just going to have to look back on Moira afterward. I don't think I can form an opinion anymore. I'm so yeah. scared. <laughs> As I said, I'll probably have an idea about how Inferno is going to go around the time I'm halfway through the fourth issue of Inferno. <laughs> wow. So you're Accurate. banking on early. Oh, is that early? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to trust it at the last page. And even then, I'm going to make sure that it doesn't say to be continued in a one shot or, to, you know what I mean? Like I am, I'm on the edge of my seat here because while Hickman has said, this is just the end for now, he'll come back later on. I have some concerns about a complete relaunch of the line early next year. Yeah. And since they're saying that is the case out of Inferno, I just want to make sure that the end of Inferno really is the right place to leave the line. I'm not saying leave the story unsatisfying. I really just want to make sure this is kept in a position where the Krakoan era should stay. Don't do anything wacky and then leave it a shambles. Yeah, I don't want like a whatever happened to the children of the Atom kind of deal. Oh my god, I can't believe you just fucking said that to me. (laughs) I feel like I have to clarify now because I've just said that on the air without thinking about it. I'm not referring to Vita Ayala's series, The Children of the Atom. I'm referring to Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. However, I would like to point out that Neil Gaiman's Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader is terrific. I like that story. I feel like I haven't read it in years and other people don't seem to be liking it a lot. So maybe I should reread it. But I I did like that story when I read it. I read it when I, yeah, I read it when it came out and I liked it then. Mm -hmm. Same. Welcome back to another segment of X is for Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Inferno number two, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Stefano Caselli, colors by David Uriel, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Mystique gets her wife back. Charles and Eric are glorious dumbasses, and the Quiet Council fills out those two vacancies. But no amount of summation can do justice to what this book was. This was a phenomenal piece of visual storytelling, the story we've all been desperate for since the end of Hawk Hawk arguably the greatest and most defining issue of comics featuring Mystique ever. It's beautiful, it's emotional, it's resonant. I loved it so much, and I can't wait to talk about it with our fantastic Jade team. With me today is Arturo. Hello, I'm Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Drew. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at for 3 That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. <laughs> Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at comic underscore canary. I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me at asleep at the, on Twitter at asleep at the wheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And for the next 12 months, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate here in Florida, you can find me across social media at wheel, the number four, U.S. Senate, and joshwheel.org. So there's so much to talk about in this book, and I want to get started with the art. Um, it's interesting, too, because we this is a, a very explicit companion piece to Hoxpots. Like, these are clear clear hard bookends like if you wanted to we were talking in the green room and if we're talking about like the hickman run of x-men there's lots of stuff in the middle right he had giant size and he had his x-men anthology series with amazing issues like crucible you know he had his contributions to empire x-men and ten of swords you know he had his whole orchestration 
of the line-wide movement. But at his run, I, I feel, after this issue especially, will be most kind of defined and looked at as Hoxpox Inferno. Um, because yeah. these are just above and beyond at a whole nother level. And artistically, we got something really special with Hoxpox, where they put so much time into giving two amazing artists in um, R.B. Silva and um, Pepe Larraz so much time to get all of that art done ahead of time to make sure that we could get that book, you know, in 12 consecutive weeks. You had colors tied together by Marte Gracia across the run, and it set a, a new visual tone for this entire era. Here, we're not getting that consistent art, at least right off the bat. You know, the first issue was by Valerio Schiti, and here we have Stefano Selli. And yet, it's different, but it visually, it, it ties in with the first issue. It calls back and it feels like a piece that goes with Hoxpox and this era. Mm-hmm. And it, in in every aspect, does a phenomenal job of visual storytelling. It's it breathtakingly beautiful throughout in its own way with its own little distinctions, little things that make it different. The the body language and the mannerism that he gives to like Xavier and his, his glorious dumbassery as I, I keep putting it in his scenes. The, the facial expressions that we see, the paneling and the layout. And like the way that certain pages and panels are direct callbacks to to Hoxbox was just incredible and we've seen we saw that in issue number one where retelling or rehearing the story of destiny and and pyro and and mystique getting moira right and how that was like revisiting that scene from from Hoxbox, but with new and fresh art that still felt like it was taken from that same exact scene and we saw that again here like charles and eric talked to moira and they decided they need to bring somebody else in who better than emma frost so they give emma you know the the mental download of moira's lives and just watching the way um, the way it hit emma was so reflective of that panel from i think it was house of x2 house of x2 when, yeah yeah when 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 the when moira's when the the big reveal of moira being a mute like that that was such a pivotal moment like house of x2 is i think one of the best comics that have come out in the last 20 years absolutely specifically number two like that issue was just so incredible and this does such a great job of echoing that and like hearkening back to that but like charting its own course at the same time it's just incredible by far my favorite panel or page of this entire issue when you see moira standing above emma frost and she's like surrounded with these like fractured panels of her different lives like and it's such a such a clear homage to that that two-page spread with gene gray uh or with with teen gene when she was getting gene gray's memories it, it's like that like beautiful beautiful way to just last go. week we were talking about trial of magneto number three and we, there was a page in there where we said clearly an homage to teen yes. gene getting those memories right and yeah. and it talk was about it was works bad. versus yeah. doesn't work yep like <laughs> yep Oh, for sure. Just the visual storytelling itself throughout the entire she was just absolutely incredible. Like just the beginning itself, like just hopping around here. The beginning is the one that was most striking to me, where it was my aha kind of moment, because that was a question that we've been thinking is like, like, where is Magneto's helmet? What happened to Magneto's helmet? What was going on? And it was Mystique and just showing exactly how she did it without any dialogue. It was just really 
really powerful to me. And it was just so brilliant where they didn't have to say a single word about it. No, this this whole issue makes me like angry that we haven't gotten more Mystique <laughs> in the last two years. Like she's just such an incredible character, such a capable character. The way she played the entire council against itself, like she played Sinister, she played Shaw, like she, she had to, you know, get incentives for people and like she's just such a g and i i wish we had more of her like an x-force maybe but i don't know if she'll have time for that now we were talking about mystique in the green room and i would say that hickman with his like trajectory of her through like hawkspox and then in his x-men run up to now and through this has made mystique like he's made mystique probably one of my like top five favorite x-men characters she's just like such a cool character like it's it's hard to get cooler than mystique you know like she's just she's just incredible she has i mean she has had amazing runs everything that i've loved about mystique through all of the runs through jason aaron's use of her because he did a fantastic job uh, through his his wolverine runs even what we saw during the bendis era um, during the supernovas era every time that we've had great mystique runs i feel like this is a a take on the character that ties it all together and really makes her so whole and real and gives her her, her best story and the most agency yeah and you know i i know that it's not going to be in it because hickman did an interview with aipt and he said that he was going to do some rogue stuff in this too with like mystique and rogue and i but it's not going to happen because he had to cut it out due to like length and you know it was just going to be too much um which is a total crime. Like, we just gotta say, like, like I need Mystique, Destiny, Rogue, and Nightcrawler all to have, like... I know, that's the dynamic I really, really, really want to see. It's just, like, that family. As much, like, I want to see that family like we saw the Summers family. Like, when we got that holiday anthology, like, four or five years ago, where it was, <laughs> like, whatever it was, 31 pages, and each one was, like, a day in December, and we got, like, a little one-page story of, like, some X-Men character during Christmas. I want one of those one pages of just like family dinner with Kurt, Rogue, Gambit, Mystique, and Destiny. Like, I want that. For sure. That would be absolutely awkward as hell. And I want that awkward. I want that awkward exchange so badly. Just so badly. And Kurt just being goofy and happy in the middle, like a little kid that like, my family, like, we're having family dinner at the holidays. Yeah, exactly. Like, my sister like, and like, my mom and- <laughs> Like everyone's just like not making eye contact, not talking except for Kurt, who's totally oblivious to the entire situation. He would be so happy. He would. Let's talk a little bit about Destiny and her her glow up. Destiny coming back in the body of, I don't know, maybe a 30-something year old, maybe 20-something. I don't know. You're the age you were when we first met. It's yes. my welcome back gift for the both of us. I love that. And honestly, that just kind of like scratched an itch for me that just makes sense. Like if if you were going to be resurrected, you know, why would you come back in, in, in an older body? Like if we resurrect Magneto one day, like I would love to see him in like a Joseph type of body because it just would make sense. Like, why would you come back in anything other than your prime? I have a rebuttal to that, actually, because isn't the entire point of the resurrection protocol to bring you back to where you were? That way, um, it's like you just continue living where you were versus like starting over. Well, mentally, yeah, no, mentally, Mentally, yes, like your body, whatever. Yeah, your 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 memories can be intact and all that, but like they can they can do little tweaks to you know. 
yeah, like have the the patience and wisdom of older me in like the body of younger me. Like that's that's the win. That's it. Yeah, that that's true. But I guess what I guess you... that just brings up like the big debate about the resurrection protocols and everything, <laughs> which is probably a bigger debate than we want to get into. But I do like it. They talk about like how awkward it was, how she's has like this this mind, this a different mind and a different body, and how for like it took her a while to kind of get used to that, and how it was kind of weird. Yeah. Well, and it, it also writes something that that was just part of X Men history for so long, right? Like seeing Mystique and and uh, and Destiny together. That wasn't, you know, until God, what was that issue? Uh, was that that like Marvel one thousand? Yeah, they weren't explicitly called a wife until something like that. It was like right. when well, and there they weren't. I don't even think they were called wives, but they were. It was confirmed on panel finally that they. They were a couple right that they were lovers i don't think the wife term came up until i want my wife back which was what x-men six or eight six um, so you know i mean like claremont's on record as saying like they, they he always intended for them to be together and it was certainly implied and it was you know it was there it was like obvious for anyone to see but it it was just different you know things were different in the 80s and 90s there was that panel where after destiny dies where mystique scatters her ashes in the time and place that mystique told her and then when she throws the ashes the ashes blow back into her face and mystique starts laughing and it's like okay i guess i could scatter my best friend's ashes but there's also a chance that they're not just gal pals so seeing that just like brought not just like into canon but that this lesbian relationship is now going to be so central and so pivotal to like what happens next and just this this turning point in in continuity here in what's going on with the x-men is just so gratifying yeah and it's the way they were drawn like they were paneled and drawn in those those freedom force issues of x-men like they would they had a plane remember right like they were always like flying to their missions on a plane and you'd see them like discussing and there was there was like a, a sectional kind of sofa on the plane and like mystique and destiny were always like nestled together like like one of them like leaning against the other in like the corner of this like sectional sofa thing on the plane like like they, like they were trying to visually make it like as clear as possible that like these are not just best friends <laughs> yeah people who complain in comics being like why does comics have to be so politically correct and i gave you it's like they've been there the whole time have you not read comics it's they have been there they are there and we are happy to get final confirmation yes and so one of my favorite things about the krakoa era has been the use of you know i'm gonna say quote unquote villains and not not the um, you know, redemption per se, because I wouldn't call like what we saw with Apocalypse redemption, right? Like Apocalypse was written in such a way and taken in where his mission that he'd always had was fulfilled with Krakoa, you know, and other characters that, you know, have gotten this as well. I think one of the best is probably Exodus. And we get some great Exodus moments in this issue. Um, and I, I love him in this era because, you know, this is, there's nothing in here that conflicts 
conflicts with the person he's always been in his long history of Ekman Kost. This is him finally finding his home. Like finally it all clicks and makes sense and he, he and he can feel good and be doing what he wants to do and it's not bringing him in conflict with the other X-Men or mutes or other things. He get, they, they get to all be together in this. And there's a great line with Magneto in it too where you know Moira's like just go fucking kill Destiny. <laughs> he's like I've waited my whole you know he's telling her like I'm not going to like I'm not going to fuck up or disrespect like or break the laws of Krakoa for you on this. Like I have waited my whole life for this. Like Krakoa brings it brings the good and the bad Magneto in line. Like it's the thread wanting this is the thread between like the best and worst versions of these characters. And I love how how delicate and true that that you know like we get to have them together without compromising anything cuz so often we have unearned redemptions where like someone's like, "Well, you know, this villain's getting popular and we want to do more stories with them or we want to like these unearned redemptions where like they're just going to be a good character now forget that they killed all these people and this this is earned without being a redemption like this is just you know better circumstances the world has changed and put them all honestly on the same side and so i love it it allows mystique to kind of play off of exodus and for xavier and magneto to see it coming and be like yeah yeah no exodus is gonna totally love destiny like exodus is gonna totally love destiny like yeah we we knew he was going to be down for that. Yeah, um, well, because not only that, but it just shows like he drinks the Krakoa Kool-Aid hard. Hard. Like, like he's like, it's almost like he's squishing his little Kool-Aid pocket just so that he can get the, those last drops. <laughs> he loves sitting around the fire and telling, you know, mutant glory tales to the children. Going back to Exodus, like he was so, when he was introduced, he was so committed to the idea of Magneto and then beyond Magneto, it was about mutant kind, but he was like a zealot for Magneto and like, you know, Exodus got lost for a while. At one point, he was like working for the Marauders. He was working for Sinister. So like he has played different roles. But I love this this context when he said, I now know I only ever believed in one thing, but I had to see the promised land before I truly understood who I was and what I wanted. And I love that so much because it really illustrates how he is so committed to Krakoa and to mutant kind, period. Like his allegiance isn't to Xavier or Magneto or any anybody else's specific ideology it's it's beyond all of that to the point that it's for Krakoa period it's almost what it's almost what uh Magneto was saying in like the the scene that we're gonna get in a couple pages that he doesn't want to risk what Moira wants him to do for Krakoa Exodus is at his best as a servant and you know he's always seen a little lost or confused when he's been on his own he wants to serve the cause and when he has to lead the cause he he doesn't he doesn't like that and so not only that you know mutant kind is safest and strongest and in its best place on Krakoa but that Krakoa gives him a cause to serve he doesn't have to be the leader or the strategist or anything else that like he kind of tried becoming at times that was a a bit of a mess like he gets to serve Krakoa and he is never going to betray Krakoa okay so that was Exodus then we get Sinister Sinister the reason that Sinister votes with Mystique is because as she put it it's simple really the great man don't want you to do it and they will demand that you comply and that's enough for sinister to say fuck those guys well argued yeah kate pride is a vote no against destiny as she looks in an adorable panel that facial expression is just top tier you know she sees mystique is pulling some shady shit and that's enough for her to say hell no shaw gets played into voting yes because simply because he thinks emma's gonna vote no and then emma votes and i want to talk about this and like 
what if anybody has any theories on what's in the box what's in the box well so because this is yeah let's set up that emma frost who is i think you know probably one of the top like fan favorite characters of of the x's for podcast team like we love her so much emma is maybe the second biggest character right this really revolves around three strong female characters here we're talking about mystique emma moira and so what what happens with emma like this is major and and i love it because i love that the strength of this is in these three female characters and xavier and charles are just these glorious dumbasses like constantly also showing that they have no fucking understanding of women whatsoever like at every turn like and i i love the way xavier is drawn throughout this particularly when we get full body because he always has these like slightly off postures like he's like like he's like tilting his body or like leaning a little bit like thinking or be like he's always like a little bit bent or off like huh and it's it's so perfect because he's always drawn so linear and straight and he's always such a straight man but you know we get such a a great xavier dumbass quick props to the amazing use of forearms as a fencing partner for sebastian shaw and then emma mystique bought emma and emma's okay with it but what did she buy her with we see mystique who is she stealing this from? Does anyone recognize, like, who she's stealing from? I got, like, Apocalypse or, like, you know, Clan, Clan Akaba. Clan Akaba I got some Akaba vibes. But, like, I, I don't know. It's, it's like, such a big mystery. Like, there's these uh, statues that look like, you know, like, mummies, basically, like Tutankhamun or whatever. But, like, their heads kind of look like AIM helmets. So, like, I have no idea. I have no idea who she stole from or what she stole. I, I, I It made me think of that hellfire gala and the the logic the crystals. crystals but like the this isn't crystals. that i i, I just no. i really don't know and during the hellfire gala um emma invited this these guests that are from like a mysterious place and she wanted something from them yeah do you guys remember that well no and but that, those were the logic crystals weren't they from oh. shiar space no because it wasn't from it wasn't from the shiar that she was talking to it was like this mysterious race that like likes to be hidden doesn't like to be known um and and she wanted something thing from them but they well, mystique didn't. got it yeah and mystique that's what i think that the thing that mystique got for her because i don't i don't remember it i don't think they would give it to her well, we will find out by uh, christmas yes and destiny sits on the quiet council not only does destiny sit on the quiet council destiny sits at the head alongside xavier and magneto yeah she yeah she took apocalypse's seat she takes apocalypse's seat which honestly i think is like if we're talking about like the the council and like rep, like the who should have that spot, I she is like I think she's a good choice for that that seat because like, I mean there were seat. two. She seated herself before they voted. She knows the future, so like shouldn't she be on the council to help them? Like if you take Moira's machinations out, yes. But also, I mean now Mystique and her family are twenty five percent of the Quiet Council. Like y'all just let Mystique, her wife, and her son become twenty five percent of the Quiet Council. But no, I thought it was very interesting and, and it spoke a lot about the power play that every time we've seen anyone else in there for any sort of voter decision they stand in the middle while the council votes around them destiny took her seat beside eric and charles before the vote even began yeah it shows not only that destiny knew the outcome but also that just the power play of that that's her seat so let's take a minute and talk about the other seat Ooh. so we do fill finally and, and it is felt like these ever since 10 of 
of Swords that these seats have been left open longer than we expected. And very, very interesting, not what I would have expected in terms of who would eventually fill them. Because I, I, I don't think at the end of Ten of Swords that we saw they were going to stay open until literally Hickman's final story in Inferno wrapping this up. So Destiny takes Big A seat. We have a seat left alongside Nightcrawler and Storm. Arturo, this had to make you very, very happy. It was a roller coaster of emotions. Yes, happy, but also very concerned for Piotr. I find it funny that Charles and Eric, wait, you know, see, okay, Destiny's here. Destiny's now part of it. What's our counter move? Oh, well, let's try to bring bring Emma in. That doesn't really work out. So they're trying to manipulate the whole council by stacking the deck with Colossus and playing because everybody. Because they're dumbasses. But it's they're, glorious dumbassery. Right, but they're getting played. And like, here's where shipping of these comics and, and the timing of everything kind of throws up some question marks. Like, you know, we've been talking about how it would have been great if we did the Trial of Magneto and concluded that before we got into Inferno. I would also wish that we had gotten a little further in X-Force because like the big yes. question mark for me right now is, is this the Colossus that is, and last we saw Colossus in X-Force, he's, mm-hmm. you know, being manipulated by the Chronicler. By the this, Chronicler. This like yep. mutant who's in the thrall of Mikhail and he's like a reality warper who can, who can alter, who, who can control events and people through fiction through like writing writing a story and then that like taking grip in reality and the last page of, of that x-force issue was charles knocking on colossus's door so it's kind of like a big i really wish i had one more issue of x-force before i got this just so i could kind of gauge how fucked we are but i think yeah, we're we fucked. don't we thought that that was about him killing his girlfriend now maybe like was that about was that page charles knocking on his door we need to talk about like you're going to be on the quiet council right I personally right like there's like we read the next issue of, mm-hmm. of x-force which is like, and it's about know. him killing his girlfriend then like what the fuck no no i exactly if, then it would be what the fuck but if it's about him being asked to join the council then it's kind of like a, a flashback of what we're seeing you know and it would make it may make a nice flow this definitely changes my feelings about the end of x-force because when we talked about the last issue of x-force i definitely felt like this was all wrapping up by december now it yeah no i i would i would feel that you know x-force is essentially giving us a chronicler controlled colossus going into january on the council like i but i don't even it's so hard because we know that the shipping on this is is locked i hate knowing like and not knowing what is like what is the order or the part of what made hoxpox so great was knowing that it was delivered to us exactly the way it was intended and knowing that this is not does create some you know fuzzy brain confusion around this you know they just got beat by a strong woman who is you know going to be out thinking them at every turn and uh, knows things they don't and they can't control so what is what is their obvious recourse we'll fill the other seat with a with, pawn that we can control with a dumb boy <laughs> yeah. who, who will never outthink us who we can easily control and they're not wrong they're not wrong. except so except because he's a dumb boy who can be easily controlled someone else might also be controlling him at this moment yeah we've had concerns about colossus and like what's happening with him and so at least i'm excited to see it's like okay what's happening with him but on the other hand it's like ooh, what's happening with him so 
it's more to me it was more ominous than anything just because i'm just like just our conversations in like both in real life when we're just talking to each other as well as on the podcast we're just like hmm something seems off here and now i'm like hmm what's gonna happen next (laughs) i do love the kind of nice giant size fit i love that you know we have three characters in colossus nightcrawler and storm that all made their initial appearance in giant size x-men number one and we're all part of that you know essentially like rebirth of x-men that would become the claremont era team and so pairing him with them i I thought was a very very nice kind of touch see like be careful what you wish for because i've wanted colossus on the council i wanted him there as uh the guy who's not interested in in battle and 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 fighting he's there to like preserve for cohen culture and he's like minister of the arts and you know like that was kind of what i wanted from him and and he's just going to be a pawn you know somebody's pawn or, or another person's pawn and i'm just i'm very worried for what is coming down the road but see my thing is is he yeah he is still being played as a pawn but it's it's also of what what's going to happen and how the chronicler is going to like have his finger basically in the council and and hopefully like we'll see that in x-force next year i hope we see it sooner than next year mm-hmm. damn I, I need some resolution with all this well and, and that's part of the thing is you know we we really felt because of the the release cycle on this and god the fact that this does not have a single artist over the four issues like that we're two issues in with two different artists like could we not like i love having inferno now could we not have just gotten this in four straight weeks in december i think though isn't it all like all four issues are are different artists yeah exactly like is that not the easiest thing to make sure that like when it's not one artist to do it over four months it's four artists all right drawing it in the same month like could we not have gotten these all just given to us in four straight weeks in december like why did why are we getting this overlapping with trial of magneto and these other store Darkhold and the ending of x-force and i personally think that trial of magneto should have been an oversized one shot so they could have just done mm-hmm. that and then had all the then had this released after this also hurts trial of magneto because trial of magneto being a big event and important like nothing else can be called important while inferno is going on mm-hmm. and that and we we already kind of know the outcome of that magneto is going to yeah. be fine so the big wrap-ups for these other stories that aren't done are just losing their weight because inferno is going on at the same time exactly. i would much rather have seen those wrap up and us get this in four straight weeks the way we got 12 straight weeks of hawks pox before the other stories started like you guys are saying with just a little better planning and maybe just holding back like oh let's not release this you know in october let's wait till november and then ship it all you know back to back i think would make so much more sense it just would keep the excitement it would keep people you know caring because like the big stakes for trial of magneto were okay what's going to happen to magneto number one and seems clear like nothing of nothing of much consequence and number two what's going to happen with scarlet witch well we're not sure yet but whatever happens in trial of magneto we know that by the time inferno comes around scarlet witch is not a big player on krakoa so she might be fine she might be restored she might be you know by the end of trial like on her road to redemption it doesn't feel like anything else is going to happen in 
important in trial that's going to tie into the rest of, of the Krakoan era for a while? I mean, it's it's hard to say because at the beginning of trial, you know, like personally for me, I, I had a lot of speculation that Mystique was involved, especially with trial as a lead up to Inferno. And now that we've seen so much Mystique behind the scenes, you know, maneuvering and plotting and scheming, like, does this make me think less that there's going to be Mystique plotting and scheming in trial? Like, no, like we've already seen the whole helmet thing cross over and touch and however that was supposed to play out or be a prelude or, or whatever if these were actually in release order yeah like so then what like are we gonna just be getting more it feels like there isn't a big ending of trial of magneto spoiled like it's not like scarlet witch is sitting on the quiet council now right. and we're like what exactly. the fuck like i guess that happens in trial right but which would have like with everything we just saw mystique do like is that gonna be like is some of that spoiler for her maneuvering and like what she did with it's it's going to make trial more underwhelming like trial is negatively affected by being released concurrently with inferno partly because it just can't hold up partly because the bigger story that follows it is coming out at the same time Inferno has taken all the wind out of Trial of Magneto sales. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would agree. Yeah. Trial of Magneto as a build up to Inferno would have felt like we were increasing the tension each week right. getting there as yeah. opposed to now like we're just dipping into something that is less important while we're waiting for the next issue of Inferno. And would it have also been better if they hadn't spoiled that it's Magneto who's on trial? Because don't forget that happened where we're all like, oh, okay, so Magneto probably killed someone. Great. Let's talk about it. <laughs> or the or, yeah, it should have just maybe been called the trial. But also, yeah. how about the fact that we're sixty percent of the way through and there's no trial? Yeah, yeah. it's not actually. A... <laughs> yeah, I mean, like calling it the trial of Magneto was cool because it harkens back to the original trial of Magneto in Uncanny X Men two hundred. I'm all for that, but like, it felt like before, like, okay, we're we have these big chapters, these big uh, events. Like Ten of Swords was one of them. Hellfire Gala was was a big event it felt like trial was going to also be a big event leading up to the big inferno event and now it feels more like trial of magneto is kind of like the x-men fantastic or mini where it's yes this story that has import and it happened and or it's happening or whatever but it's also you know just this little side quest that doesn't feel like it's central in the way that inferno is clearly central and we didn't even talk about nimrod there's some nimrodding shit going on mystique is uh managed to sneak in and infiltrate orcus and see what their big project is like that was we got huge. all of hickman's big stories going on at the same time that was huge like, there's and more again than just and again you see Wipes. like mystique doing all the hits all her tricks like just yeah. she's just so cool yeah yep. mystique realizing that you know they've uh, they've sent her off to die far more times than they've let her remember but her also while they're standing around arguing about like which dumbass should we put in the final quiet council seat so we can control their vote she's actually going in and infiltrating orcas <laughs> after we've seen x-force fuck it up how many times in recent like in Inferno 1 we learned right Mystique's like nah I got this yeah Mystique did more in one issue than X-Force has been able to do apparently in the background since this whole time so what I'm if, hearing is she just needs her own like mini series right now where she's just fucking up Orcas <laughs> Thank you.
Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now, this next segment is double coverage of two Death of Doctor Strange issues. We're kicking things off with Death of Doctor Strange Avengers by Alex Pacnadel, with pencils by Ryan Bodenheim, inks by Kyle Bodenheim, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by Corey Pettit. From there, we're going to take a look at Strange Academy Presents Death of Doctor Strange, written by Scotty Young, with art by Mark Del Mundo, with some color assist by Marco Delfonso, and letters by Clayton Cowles, as well as a number of one-off stories, all written by Scotty Young, featuring art by Nico Henriksen, Peach Momoko, Humberto Ramos, Edgar Delgado, Alexandro Capuccio, Gustavo Duarte, Carlos Vila, David Baldon, Luciano Vecchio, and Natasha Bustos. So I just wanted to make sure that we got all of those artists credited before this segment, and we love the art that all of these artists, and so we always just want to make sure that we are crediting everybody who comes together to make these incredible books, which we love covering for you guys every week. And don't forget, guys, if you like what you hear, you'll probably like what you see. So give us a follow over on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at X is for podcast. Until then, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X is for podcast. The short we take a look at the many depths of Doctor Strange. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Trantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hello, it's me, Steve. And you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. Hey, it's Nathan, and you can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. That's right, yeah, Dazzler AOA, like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike that one wizard who was in the Crystal Place, who is uh, taken over the land and basically sucked the soul out of uh, Eric. And like, damn, Enchantress. I love the way you describe issues by sort of vaguely <laughs> saying a thing or two that might have happened, but throwing in a lot of pronouns, so we're never sure who you're talking about. It is- I'm, I, I'm pretty sure there's at least one wizard in both of these titles that we will be covering today. I will not argue with that. There is at least one wizard in both of these titles. Well, by now I feel like it's only appropriate to name the titles and at least one absent wizard. Today we're here to discuss two different entries in Death of Doctor Strange. That's right, everyone's favorite crossover about dentists, DDS. (laughs) We're here today to talk about Death of Doctor Strange Avengers and Strange Academy Presents Death of Doctor Strange. I just want to go out of my way to say that I don't think either of these needed to be here at all. (laughs) And it led, because I green-roomed that, and... I was I was laughing that like I felt that this should have just been any issue of Avengers. I don't care. It could have been the backup story in the back of Death of Doctor Strange. I don't care. It was fine, but it didn't really do anything for me. It didn't move the story. And then I felt that the Strange Academy issue should have just been an annual and not at all Death of Doctor Strange. And I was like, ugh, what a bummer, but I'm really excited. And Steve, you had a pretty cool response. I, I Yeah, I, I was excited for these issues specifically because they did not move the story forward. I didn't want that. I would like to, I like to be able to to read a series that that is like an event series and just like read the story and know what happened and not have to like go in to find the like whatever tie-in to figure out why the story jumps so much so i was delighted that these were just like little vignettes of regular books but like what happened because dr strange died like i, I i'm comparing this to king and black a series like that's a 
that's a mini series that I, I don't really want to read. Uh, I can't finish it. I've tried, but a lot of the tie-ins don't move the story forward at all, but are like super fun. I'm specifically thinking of the Immortal Hulk King and Black tie-in or the Iron Man and Doctor Doom tie-in. Like those have the Valkyrie's book was. Oh, the Valkyrie's book was amazing. I have not gotten to that one yet, but I'm excited to read it because, like, honestly, all of the King of Black tie-ins are just like really dope one-shots, mostly, you know. Mm. And uh, I didn't have to read the main series, so I I kind of, despite the fact that I'm reading the Death of Doctor Strange main series, I liked (laughs) that these were just like. So, how are the Avengers dealing with this? It make it makes the Death of Doctor Strange feel like actually important to the world of comics instead of just like a thing that's happening to Doctor Strange. Mm. I love that take on it, but now I'm only sad that X. X-Men number four wasn't included yeah. in the list. It could have been X-Men because, presents Doctor, Death of Doctor Strange. Yeah, that was as much an issue of Death of Doctor by Okay, you're you're winning me over, but now other wonderful gentlemen here to weigh in on these comics. Nathan, Kyle, Jonah, how do you guys feel about the superfluous by design nature of these two issues? Do you guys feel, hey, do the thing? Or do you guys feel, womp, there went my $8? I really liked the sort of like one and done nature of it. Like I, I love serialized storytelling, but every once in a while I want to see a story that's like, bam, this doesn't really have much to say. And it's still kind of fun at the same time. Like anytime you can get me a whole bunch of like bodiless juggernaut avatars, I'm I'm cool with that. Like I've definitely read that fanfic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> But yeah, anytime you can get me the that kind of fun, offbeat humor and still have a little bit of stuff, like especially like if you're talking about the Avengers one where Tony Stark's in the shower thinking of the three mothers and he's just like, I need a drink, I need a drink, I need a drink, I need a drink. It, it's still it's still tied in enough for me to like have some character effect for what they'd seen. Yeah. They probably they probably should have had like asterisks on here being like, These are the ones you don't need to read, but you can't. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a vague idea of something you might want to do in between the other issues. It's kind of like Heroes Reborn, right? Like, some of those were not necessary to the whole story, and some of them weren't all as fun. But I I think they all added to the world building of the event. And I I hear what you're saying, Nathan, because, you know, we talk about, I for some reason, at nauseam about Heroes Reborn. Right. (laughs) For some reason, we find ways to bring it in. But I guess my difference is that had concurrent main issues of Heroes Reborn 1 through 7 that were telling the main story they were trying to tell. All the side stuff was just side stuff, and you understand that. Here, I I am of two mindsets of, I don't mind that it's it didn't move the story forward that much. It doesn't really bother me. I, I can deal with an issue or two of just being like, hey, this is fun. You, you might enjoy this. I guess it, but it felt a little too much like filler. I was a little more wanting i think a little more substance to come out of it or at least like help set up more of what we can possibly see coming forward i don't know if both of these issues did a good job in doing that for what exactly is going on because it is a very extreme situation we're in with the death of dr strange that i need to see a little more meat of like what exactly is going on in the world and how are the 616 uh i almost said avengers the 616 heroes what are they doing to prevent basically their entire world crumbling from all these unseen or seen magic threats so i i had a lot of fun with these books i mean they're they're really just fallout from the the main series and i took it as that i i wasn't like oh this is 
going to move the story forward because they're not Death of Doctor Strange, they're Avengers and Strange Academy. It kind of would have helped if there was a little progress, but that's that's not what these were designed for, it feels like. At, I mean, at this point, we're, we're what? This is the, these are including Death of Doctor Strange 2. This is, these are three books that we've seen where we've dealt with fallout of his death. And not much has happened, yeah. Right. Although we did get the badass I mean, ladies in number we two. Did, we did get the yeah. badass ladies, and we did get to see Tony's reaction to what happened. So seeing that and ha- having that have an effect on his performance in Avengers, that was kind of nice to see. Yeah, the character work on Tony in uh Death of Doctor Strange Avengers is like really what I came here for. I thought that, I thought it was really good in the way that Alex Pacnadel. I always expect that from them because uh, I, I remember, I think it was the Lords of Empire. That was uh, maybe the first stuff I wrote, I read from Alex Pacnadel. It's always a delight. And I'm really glad to hear that sort of kind of other opinion because I actually didn't love the Tony Stark characterization. It felt to me like somebody handed the writer a kind of like, this is a sort of Tony Stark dossier. And it felt like if you had to do a surface book on Tony, yeah, this was it. But I don't feel like this felt like a result of where Tony is now. And I feel like the contextualization on that is only important to me because this is so clearly set during Death of Doctor Strange. But then I'm kind of like, why did we bring up War of the Realms? Not like coming after War of the Realms, <laughs> but that's old now. <laughs> it's, it's really not that old. Like I, I know, no. I know that it feels that old because it's been so long. But like the pandemic definitely stretches that time, and it's yeah. it's had such an impact on the modern era. I'm more thinking about that. There's been 20 issues of Thor since War of the Realms ended, and there have been over 20 issues of Valkyrie since War of the Realms ended. Mm. So there's at least been a considerable amount of story moving forward that it almost feels odd that there have been other major Asgardian-related events that have directly impacted Thor and Iron Man's relationship in the titles they appear in together, that War of the Realms was named. It sort of feels like some other more pressing things that these two characters and their narrative share got skipped. I like the fact that they brought that up, because in Marvel time, even though there's been 20 stories, like it's trying to make it a more lasting storyline. And I know it was really hard on War of Realms, especially like, what permanent changes is it going to make to marvel but it it did actually make some more permanent changes than has been seen out of some of the more recent ones like king of black like war rumps installed thor as the you know the king of asgard like and he's that's still in place you know there's still a lot of asgardian especially lore that's been affected by it so i really like that being brought up and maybe tony might have been a little bit off but this was like the first time i've actually really liked tony stark yeah. being written in a while, in a while. yeah because like usually i'm just like god damn you're so fucking sanctimonious asshole. And see, I like, thought he was, yeah, I, I felt like he was still sanctimonious here, though. I uh, felt like I, I was joking around on Twitter about this, but like how Tony just doesn't ever fucking try to understand magic. Like, he's just like, mm-hmm. he's willfully ignorant of it, you know? It's just because he doesn't Which yeah. is the most ugly thing. Yeah, I mean, it skeeves him out. Uh, and like, I totally get that. Like, I, I think it was Rob Secundus replied saying that he was a uh, STEM lord afraid of the humanities. That's like such a perfect summation. And like, I get people <laughs> like that. I do. 
but yeah, his just like need to drink in the shower is extremely relatable and reminds me of the Iron Man I read growing up. This Iron Man I really connected to, even if it's not the Iron Man that we've had for a long time. I do feel like it's the Iron Man from Empire, though, and maybe there's a connection there. Mm. Interesting. I think I thought that Iron Man in Empire was kind of like the height of his hubris. And he was just a little, like, I think I might just see Iron Man differently. And it just has to do with where you kind of orient the character from. I think for me, the, the, I really like early fraction Iron Man. I don't dig Gillen Iron Man. And I know that puts me in the minority as well there. I I know a lot of people really like that Gillen run, which I did not connect with at all. Iron Man and Empire is absolutely the height of his like modern hubris. Like it's it's agonizing at times. What I'm what I mean is more like the the way that that event shook him up. Both the War of the Realms and Empire coming so quickly just like shook his complete faith in his own abilities and his own knowledge and how I feel like Tony was like suddenly confronted with his limitations as a man of science and we see that here again. And I definitely yeah. vibe on I think that's what it is for me. War of the Realms didn't make a lot of changes to continuity. The books that came after it that told us what happened after War of the Realms in a couple of short stories setting up the next few titles, I feel did. And I think that's what I'm reacting to. War of the Realms, as much as I loved it, and I'm a huge Thor guy, was kind of over... I'm like literally playing with a hammer right now. Uh, it, uh, It was kind of overinflated. And I think that was even the nature of my question. I was sort of upset that this event, which looked like it could have been real tight, feels a little inflated. And when I feel like people judge events by dollar value, I wonder sometimes about the weight of crossover bloat but i really hear what you're saying about this one is pretty small in general and the crossover bloat here is developmental so i i do really appreciate where you guys are coming from and i really see your points yeah you make a very good point too about the economics of it like that's that is something that needs to be brought up you said earlier eight dollars is actually ten if you're buying them digitally oh my god (laughs) um and like that was a big problem for me with heroes reborn uh, an event i really love same with war of the realms both are events that i was like super into but could not possibly about, yeah. buy all the times because of how how very many they were and how unnecessary they were like i had to just pick and choose what i liked heroes reborn did do a better job of saying like these are the ones you don't need to read but can mm. I, yeah they did because they were more in tight into the story themselves mm-hmm. the ones that were more important so that had been nathan and jonah your guys kind of echo on the coverage of heroes reborn was like it's good 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 but why 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 <laughs> Yes, that is exactly how Nathan and I sound when we are echoing one another. Yeah, we were echoing. It was really fun. I, I wish. Something I've been really been thinking about, especially with the death of another very powerful magic user of the death of the Scarlet Witch, you know, in the trial of Magneto. Because everything about a woman's got to be named about a man. <laughs> uh, what I think I, what I, I have been thinking about is marketing and titling and what your title represents and a sentiment that I think I heard a lot lot of our cast members say about the uh trial of magneto is that it's weird to call it the trial of magneto because i think a lot of people would be expecting some form of a trial uh whatever that looks like whether it's a standard trial where they're going to call in lawyers like jen walters which i would you know love to see a lawyer an actual lawyer or like krakoa's version of that or whatever that may mean for them but evangeline whedon who can transform into a dragon at the sight of blood 
<laughs> we love a lawyer dragon. We love a dragon who studied the law. But I feel like here is also we're having a scene where the, where the trial of Magneto might have been better served as the death of the Scarlet Witch because you can encompass whatever you want in that. We're not expecting a certain thing. I think the death, the titling may be a little bit of throwing people off because, you know, you're expecting certain things from the death of Doctor Strange. You're expecting not only fallout and aftermath of how these characters are reacting to it, but you're also expecting, well, how are they going to solve the problems until they can fix what to do about the death of Doctor Strange? I don't know if I can even really call this an Avengers issue. I think if this was just called Death of Doctor Strange Iron Man, I would have been a lot happier and easier to on and on board with it. Mm. Because yeah, no, seriously. That would have changed yeah. the whole okay. thing for me. A thousand percent. Okay. I would have given yeah. this a, 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 a B plus, probably. I definitely would definitely would like it a little bit more if the title was shifted to be about Iron Man. Because that's what yeah. this book is about. It's about it's a lot more about Iron Man and as well as his dealing with magic, dealing with a little bit form of PT. PTSD of having something enter his armor and him having no power control. But it's it's hard to call this an Avengers book because we don't really get the feelings and thoughts of Captain Marvel, Steve, or Thor. They're kind of very stoic about the entire thing and they're kind of big picture. We just need to get this done. We can't really worry about our own feelings. But we're not even exploring specifically that storyline. We kind of just have to put all that to the side to talk a lot more about Tony, which is fine. There's no problem if this is a focus on Tony. But tell us it's a focus on Tony. Don't tell us it's a team book if you're not going to give us the thoughts and feelings of the entire team. Yeah. yeah. You know, it feels like the, the Darkhold specials that we've yes, gotten so 20 far. 20 million percent. Because, it, like, yeah, the Iron Man Darkhold, like, was it really about Iron Man or was he just like the side character in it and Pepper was the main character so like, okay, yeah, if they shifted the title on that, then I could see why, I could see where you're coming from. At least here, I have an idea of what's going on. We're very clearly after the events of Doctor Strange. I cannot see it. For the wild ride and fun that I'm having with Darkhold, I cannot tell you what's going on. And I love that Broadway just comes in and he just goes, what is happening, you guys? And it's just like... Well, speaking of what is happening, we keep using the term superfluous, or I, I keep using the term No, 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 no. Don't, don't throw us in there with you. You and use the term Unnecessary. <laughs> well, you guys all use phrases like, you know, and I, I don't think that the book wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. I do perhaps think it cost a little much for what I got. I think it was mistitled. The art was a really interesting kind of sharp and angular static. I, yeah. There was... Um, there was a trading card quality to a lot of these panels where I felt like this artist really wanted this book to stand out in their portfolio. Like there was a lot of love put into crafting a cinematic quality to a lot of the shots. And I felt that at times it didn't support the characters. I thought this was a little bit not my Thor perhaps, but I felt the capturing of the, because the juggernaut doesn't always look magical. Sometimes the Juggernaut looks like some sort of deep sea diver member of the village people at a gay rave. <laughs> what? And I think when that happens, you kind of lose the magic and you get a little bit more, I'm going to bend to this rebar. So I. Oh, was, did you turn oh, Juggernaut into Bender? <laughs> uh, yeah, Bender by way of Vin Diesel. These guys looked really magical. Even if, you know, sometimes I maybe felt Thor, who we've just described as not the star of the show might have been underserved i thought a lot of the magicality of the book was served really well how did you guys feel about the incredible art bodenheim you are absolutely 100 right that bodenheim has the static quality i i really like this art because it makes me think of saturday morning cartoons 
Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yep. it's got this like nice mix of old school and modern. And it's very like Rochelle's Rosenberg's colors are always extremely like bright and uh, chipper. But like there is that scene where Captain America is like putting his shield into a Siderak construct and he's surrounded by like Thor with his hand out and Captain Marvel shooting a blast. And Captain America literally does not look like he's punching down with his shield. He looks like he has just like set his shield in there, moved his arm and posed to rest there. Like it does. This is like not a lot of dynamism. It's got that trading card quality it to does. it. It does. It does not look like Captain America is punching. It looks like he's taking a picture. But on the by the same token like somehow it works for other areas like the layout on that scene where iron man takes the hammer uh to, mm. to the small of his back um like the 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 use the use of the gutters in the page leading up to that and then the splash page of just iron man just getting absolutely wrecked right in the back really worked for me i thought that was really cool one of the highlights of the issue when you just said gutters the first thing i thought about yeah tony stark does have cum gutters <laughs> oh god well, but like you know i not to I definitely just reread all of Strange Academy because I thought it would be necessary to reading this issue. And then I can't, it actually really paid off. It wasn't necessary, but it paid off big time. And I really think that you can sort of see how Strange Academy is one third Buffy, one third New X-Men, one third Kieran Gillen in some sort of hyper image vertigo cross-gen magic. And I think one of the few things that I don't really see as an expression of the dynamic element of new comics that Strange Academy represents is for all of the ways that Ramos is beautifully brilliant at busting out of panel borders, he doesn't use the gutters that way. And I specifically did use the gutters that way in our comic Kid Riot. And I do specifically have one-page backup stories in Kid Riot. So like, I just feel like this was, hey, guys, you guys, do good books, because then if you guys do good books, I do good books so i definitely love that you pointed out the the sort of run between the gutters which is just such an exquisite touch yeah i love when people do that i i feel like jared jared did that a lot in his early days and uh i miss it oh man back when he was uh working on daredevil his uh under and Nascenti, mm-hmm. his dynamic use of his sort of sketch outline to create elements of Blackheart was just so spectacular. Who does layout like JRJ? I don't know. That's just like, I don't know. Uh, very talented. What a brilliant guy. Yeah. And it just too many people are like, everything he draws looks like powdered toast man. And I'm like, he looks like powdered toast man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like we don't we don't have to get into JRJR right now because I feel I feel like that's a topic that we could spend an entire special on. An entire special because he's like one of the greats of all time. For the art for this issue, I only took umbrage with one moment, and that was specifically Steve's face after we Tony's in the shower when you get when they're like we have to go to the Everglades. There's one part where he just looks a little too old. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> it's like, very Steve. Like. <laughs> If we if comics were going by like how old these characters have been around for, he probably would look like that. Actually, no, because he has a super serum, so he probably would not age much, if at all. I only took umbrage with that one moment. Every line on your face adds a year to the character. So at some point in the nineties, everybody in an image comic was two hundred years old. <laughs> <laughs> I would so for me the art I really love the art. Like my favorite thing about the whole issue was just how the scenes with the juggernaut constructs avatars how it was really really throwbacky and it really looked like you know like when thor was fighting the the juggernaut thing it really looked like those classic thor issues where thor fought juggernaut so like just like the whole it really evoked that feel for me 
so for for me my favorite thing about this issue was after tony steps through the nexus and into this abstract land in between 616 and ciderax realm Mm -hmm. and i i just i just love how abstract it is and the colors are washed out and even tony takes on a different style after he steps into this into this realm and like there's just little things that are the weirdness that i i love about it and i'm i'm looking at the page right now and i'm like is that a little mini cameo of silver surfer flying by i'm pulling it up <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah no I, I actually really liked this page too uh weirdly and i think ironically he says like the chaos how did you stand it but like it looks more than anything like the world from the giant size issues of x-men recently which is like a, a science-based environment so I thought yeah that was kind of funny <gasps> it does yes it does uh yeah i don't know if i caught this oh yeah that is the right underneath flying through there holy yeah shit (laughs) i always hate seeing i i like the art for it especially when t'challa showed up on the panel uh during the illuminati flashback because it was really like oh my god but i i always fucking hate seeing the illuminati put back on page (laughs) yeah there is something a little thought police about them Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely throws me for a loop because I always have to remember it's like, okay, this is probably like Galactic Storm era or something like that. Yeah. So I have a whole thing where I think all of like the the vampiest, including like Mr. Sinister, so I don't mean it gendered, but I want like all of the sluttiest bad guys to get together and be the Illuminati. And like, <laughs> I want them to do like pinups, like all Betty Page style. And like all your favorite villains are thought police and stuff. Like, I just, I want it. I'm That's just gross. the cabal, but with sinister on it instead of Doctor Doom. That's that sounds you know. pretty much like what I want. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I don't want to surprise anybody, but if you ask me, my favorite character of Strange Academy, I would say Doyle, and I'm planning a Doyle cosplay. And I love Doyle. I just really love Doyle, right? And not just because he got to have a one-on-one with my favorite gal in the whole universe, Dead Girl, but because there's something about the Heart of Strange Academy that I really think Doyle represents. And, you know, he was not in this. And oh, no. I mean, he was, he was. And those we're going to get yeah. to those amazing one pages in the back. But this was, I feel kind of bad for people who came to this for a, a Death of Doctor Strange issue, because I definitely just got the Strange Academy annual that I had always wanted. Now, there would be no better place to start for reactions to this piece than, you know, Nathan, you are, if anybody here was like the quote unquote Amara Stan, <laughs> Nathan, I feel like it has to go to you. And Jonah, yes, we know you're going to start screaming about Dazzler. This is the one in instance where i have to point out that nathan is going to get cut off by jonah screaming about dazzler okay wait listen they haven't interacted in years and it just fucking happened canonically stronger than enchantress (laughs) so it just happened Nathan, please, please. <laughs> that was adorable, though. So, yeah, I, I do. I, I love Amora. Like, she's like, she's like the really cool, sexy witch who has agency. She's got, 
you know, like she owns her shit and she knows she she knows she's not a great person either. So she's not like trying to go out there and pretend like, oh, I'm not really a bad witch. She's just she knows she's got her own agenda and she's going for it. It's kind of like Mystique, kind of like Destiny to me. It's like she's out there doing her own thing, trying to do it. It is always hard to imagine though, Mora anymore without going back to that Dazzler 1 jumpsuit that she was wearing. Like if anybody knows, it's like Dazzler 1 or Dazzler 2, like that really green 70s jumpsuit she was wearing barring her not wearing that still i did love this but why do i hate her kids so much like i just like they're pointless and boring to me omega pink and omega teal yeah the gunther brothers are a little much uh yeah i i it's it's very funny because i like i feel like nico and i had opposite reads on these two issues uh in a lot of ways but like yeah for me it was like This story didn't do it for me. I, I have not read any of uh, Strange Academy yet, as as you guys know. I need to catch up on it. Not knowing anything about it going into this, I didn't think affected my read, but it just... The story felt like it was super rushed at the end. It's, it felt like... It felt like not a lot happened, and then they kind of had to wrap it up really quick at the end. I don't really know a lot about Eric and Alvi uh, and the relationship to Amora. I didn't have a lot of that, but I have read Weird World, and I am like the world's number one Mike Del Mundo fan. So for me, this issue completely rocked. But like, I'm proud to be all about the visuals. It's all about the I am so extraordinarily proud to be number two. I loved Weird World and I loved Del Mundo. I love that you just went there. Yeah. Excellent read. Oh man, absolutely. If you if you can just get Mike Del Mundo to do interiors, I was like so upset that he was not doing the interiors on that Kang series. No offense to the actual artist <laughs> on that series, but I was like, I thought it was going to be Mike Del Mundo and I was very, very looking forward to it. So there's a book specifically about Weird World? There are, there are several there, volumes. Yeah, there there are there several volumes going back many years. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. I need volume zero and one. Oh, they're so good. These. Okay. okay. There's some because... of the height of Aaron's craziness. And okay. Mike Del Mundo yeah. it goes all out hard in the pain on these. Because like yeah, this yep. this issue kind of made me obsessed with this area, this, so this I, I kind yeah. of need to know more. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a lot of a, it was very much what Weird World stories are like, and uh, I was surprised to see Toth in there, but I guess I shouldn't have been. I should have known. Yeah, Toth is yeah. That, so I I just reread the whole series, and there's so many nods to Weird Weird World. If you enjoyed what you read of this, I can't recommend going back and grabbing the first twelve issues on Comicsology enough. One of the things I actually just in the green room uh, mentioned to Kyle is after about six weeks, comiXology issues drop down to one ninety nine. So, yeah. and if you have comiXology unlimited, you can get the whole series for like, seriously, it's a dollar 69 each for 12 issues. I strongly recommend reading the secret wars, 2015 tie-in series, which is oh, yes. Yes. That's volume zero, oh, yes. and it is extremely good. It is extremely good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. I would think that was my big complaint, though. Like, why wasn't Toth in this more? Like, why why do they have them go to Toth's realm and not, like, he just shows up at the end? He shows like, up at the end minute. to, like, just be like, hey, I live here. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird, especially since they were sending all of the students back to where they came from. You would think that he would be there. But I, I mean, considering what, why they were in Weird World in the first place, it kind of seems as though uh, his family is in hiding. I'm assuming that time works differently in Weird World because they reference that Pulsari has been causing issues for centuries. Yeah, it's a, it's a very much a Narnia situation in there. Okay. Mm-hmm. I just have that note because now I feel like this is I don't know how I, Steve I don't know how we've never do you kill Raven do do I kill Raven 
Yeah, I uh, I definitely kill Raven. I think that's how I got to Weird World in the first place, really. Same! Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I feel much better. <laughs> so for me, I like the setting. It very much just made me think of Otherworld as opposed to Weird World, but specifically Mad Jim Jasper's Crooked Market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, I thought the setting for half of this, well, obviously because the last half is just one-shot pages of what the kids are doing. So the setting weird world weird world is fine and fun and i actually pretty much enjoy it it's very much the imagine so even though other world takes inspiration from arthurian legend and as well as other mythos and is very fairy world like it's not exactly actually like that at all it no really it's very charles vest but weird world kind of hits that niche and idea of what a trickster fairy kind of world would look like and how to navigate and like what it represents I, I can give you like basically <laughs> Archon is always a fun time, I think. But like, he is always a blast. Oh, yeah. But a lot of it is like Crystar and the Crystal Warriors and like Ogeode and like I think Rom has shown up in the past. Like it's it's like eighties like licensed toy lines that Marvel wrote comics about, all just like lumped into one realm now that the universe okay. is consolidated. It's it's people always talk about how Secret Wars was like, all right, yeah, it put Miles Morales and some stuff from Earth sixteen ten in the six one six. But like the other thing it did was put Weird World there, which is like because so weird. But, it's but the uncrisis. The uncrisis. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about the Entrancher storyline of her being a mother. I like the parts where she herself recognized that she could not give her children exactly what they need or a good lifestyle or home, mm-hmm. and she gave them to her fa- their father so that he can raise them solo because she knew that would be better for them in the long run, and I get that. My The part of me that has umbrage, because i just like, just going to use this word from now on, <laughs> I have umbrage with it, is I don't like these storylines where women who are evil stop becoming evil because they have children i think it's a little oh, reductive okay. to assume that all they needed was to be a mother or yeah. motherhood i'm not really into that so they didn't really crawl across that line but it felt like they towed towards it and then they okay. pulled back so i would really appreciate them going more into the storyline of her dealing with that and dealing with i can try to be in my children's lives but i know it's probably for the best that i have a very light hand in what they do as opposed to her, her kind of doing what she is now and not to say that you can't do that storyline and it can't be beautiful if i can uh, there's a note about something from captain marvel 28 if anybody here is currently reading captain marvel and could fill us in on what she means by she's becoming more maternal so it's one of her alternate reality children caused the bad future that captain marvel was in like she teamed up with them to try to help him get that world built but so I think that kind of maybe strengthened her maternal instinct that she kind of always tried to ignore. So like, I think I really would appreciate if they could keep building it up everywhere here. I don't think, unfortunately, I just don't think there's enough room in strange Academy for all of the characters, let alone the characters, parents. 
And I, but I agree with you, Jonah, completely that if they don't do this properly, this is going to be several men working to create a story where a woman is fixed from evil by giving birth. And I mean, while there's a lot of, you know, truth and power to creation changes all of us, you know, it, it still kind of sources back to a dick is so magic it fixes you. I didn't. Yeah, mm, I thought the yeah. la- the last page, the very last page, was extremely reductive about motherhood, and I th- I feel like that's why I felt like the story wrapped up really weirdly. Like, there's a lot of character work going into like her journey towards relating with her kids, and her kids going from resenting her to like kind of understanding why she was not fit to be in her in their life. But then at the end, it, the book kind of like decides like, oh, but that actually makes you a good mother, and it's like, no, no. The thing is, she realized she wasn't. No. Yeah, she was a she did a good thing by realizing she's a bad mother. Yes, a good decision does not a good mother make. And there's there's that line where yeah. uh, the Toth's mother, the crystal person, who I'm I don't I'm not sure of their name. I don't think they're named in this. Uh, says like she appears in a previous issue. Yeah, yeah. she says uh, yeah. you you're a great mother for making this journey for your son. And like no, like that's just <laughs> the bare minimum. And Amora literally goes like I'm no I'm not I'm not a great mother. And her kids are like no you're amazing in your own way. And it's like. Sure. You know, I don't you, know why this. I don't know why okay. this issue had to wrap up with them being like reassuring her that she's a great mother for doing this because like she doesn't even seem convinced of that at all. <laughs> I'm not convinced of that. Her kid, her other kid, is not convinced of that. No. Yeah. No, it, she's not, and she shouldn't be. And then that's and it's okay to not have. It's okay to not have those characters be changed by just giving birth. Like I, I kind of agree with what you were saying, Steve. Like why? Why does that journey have to make? her a better person when you know she was already the person she was going to be being becoming a mother doesn't mean that you're gonna necessarily change who you are and a lot of people don't yeah it's great that she realizes that she doesn't have the capacity to be a good mother but that doesn't make her a good mother to realize she doesn't have the capacity for it yeah and like i just i don't know why the book seems to feel like she needs to be told that honestly i don't know if i don't know i don't know i haven't read any of the rest of the series so it's hard for me to make any comments on like how the series is going with regards to amora or eric or alvi but it just it feels it feels like an annual like nico said just like a nice little uh exploration of character i appreciate it for the art and, you know, I appreciate it for something I would not have wanted in the sequential numbered issues of this series. I, I, I honestly, the twins are my least favorite. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, yeah. Like, of the characters, and I understand they represent an archetype, but, like, for all of the ways that I am an unfortunate gay dude bro, I am not a big fan of dude bros in my comics. And that is definitely a challenge for me with this book. I'm a Doyle guy. I like them sassy and on fire and making rings of their heads for their girlfriends hey, I don't, and stuff. I don't know much about Doyle, but can I just ask, is Doyle Beak? No, Doyle no. is like Quentin Choir. Oh, no. Oh, I was no, like, no, this no, issue was like, no. I was like, oh, so Doyle's the beak. And <laughs> I guess not. No, Doyle no. is not Quentin Choir. He's the asshole no. who's always challenging everything. He's the one who's the first to get into fights. He's the one who's the... F- so he's at least the sunspot. Which new X-Men Okay, I'll give you that. You? <laughs> oh, I'm Gene. I'm like, everybody, let's be friends. I'll bully you. I'm Gene. <laughs> <laughs> This isn't weird. <laughs> Everyone's okay with it. Burn the broccoli people. Burn the broccoli people. I ate a planet. I didn't plan it. 
Which new X-Men character am I? <laughs> um, Jojo, I think I think you represent a really fascinating study because for all of the ways that I know you're like, I'm Emma, you're not really Emma. You would think I am Emma. I would never presume. But like you're <laughs> you're like a less impotent Scott. Now I'm not sure how Scott <laughs> like <laughs> No, I mean like a less impotent <laughs> Scott. Like I mean that like, you know, he's the guy who feels that he has to take care of people, he has to be in charge, he wants to do the right thing. It's something that he instilled in himself as a meant like as a method of personal development. Like Jojo is a very do the right thing kind of guy. And you know, Scott, for all the ways we say he's no fun, I, I can't stop thinking of every Scott issue until he became Pain Olympics. There was always that moment where he had that sweet, innocent, playful thing with someone, whether it was friendship with Hank or romance with Gene or any subsequent replacement genes. He, <laughs> he always has that moment of fun passion and while true i do believe in many ways the definition of scott summers and grant morrison's new x-men is an exploration of personal impotence at a height of personal success i think that if you were to remove that impotence and explore the ideas of feeling perhaps encumbered by the success that new x-men is meant to represent for mutant kind i think you have a pretty strong character in scott I also am a little bit of beak. Okay. No, 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 no. Not, not beak. I'm so sorry. Tito. Because Tito is the best kid, and I am still conceiving of a way to age Tito up. <laughs> Uh, I love um, I love uh, the beak from Here Comes Tomorrow. That's Tito. Yeah, Tito the third, or uh, he's got Tito's grandson, Beak's oh, grandson, wow. Tito. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Right, right. So, Steve, did you have any of the one pagers that you wanted to talk about? I love one sheets as a storytelling method. So, if you say you loved all of them, I'm right there with you because one sheets are the best. I like this kind of storytelling method. As you know, I'm a big uh, Marvel Comics 1000 guy. Yes! Um, absolutely was amazing. I really enjoyed that, and I really like uh, liked Incoming. I would like another thing like that this year if they just want to do another. But yeah, some of these were good. Some of these were better than others. I think they're all good. Some of them are kind of superfluous. Uh, but if I had to pick a favorite, it's kind of easy for me. And it's the one that's not a one pager. It's a two pager. Because uh, David Baldion was like, "No, I'm gonna draw the man. I'm gonna draw the man thing." Uh, yeah. <laughs> you told me to draw a toss, but I gotta draw the man thing. So two pages. And Baldion also <laughs> d- does things with layouts that I always appreciate. I know it seems kind of simplistic to just have rectangles, but uh, they always tell a strangely emotional story with the angles. And Baldion is just an artist that I'm super into right now. I mean, I can't help but see, I, I, I hear what you're saying with rectangles, but I, they're askew. And there's something about the askewness of the rectangles. And then if we examine the spatial overlap that he tries to create a, a sense of motion with, yeah, absolutely. we can see that long panel where Toth is an element of it is on top of the next panel, which is beneath the panel below it. There's there's a, a real beauty to the movement that terminates in Man-Thing's splashdown. It's, it's stunning, really. Yeah, it really is. Between that and Edgar Delgado's colors, Edgar Delgado does a lot of the colors on this, and uh, they're all pretty great. I do want to shout out Capuccio for doing a real spooky Moon Knight job on uh, Mr. Misery, too. Oh, so good. Now, I don't I don't want to be a uh, a big fanboy in in the worst way or anything, but that Doyle page uh, poked me in the heart hole. I I appreciate Vecchio's art. Always have got super cool guy. Uh, I don't know that the art is what did it for me here. It is the humanity that they're showing in my precious Doyle. It's the sort of way that they're kind of trying to elevate his his narrative and yet avoid mentioning that his dad was just a planet that died. So 
there's some really interesting things in how they're trying to manipulate his character. And I felt very much like this was a fulfilling version of that without having to get too into his pain. He just has a sweet moment and a sweet moment in sadness is just as powerful as a dark moment in sadness. And I just thought that this was sort of the height of why Scotty Young is so good at this book. Okay, but I'm sorry though, the art that I the seeing a mindless one in a cooking apron, a pink cooking apron, like, oh my god. I actually, oh no, oh, oh genius. Yeah. I felt like yeah. that was more of a mindful one one pager than a Doyle one pager, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, which I like, you know, I like mindful one. The only thing I can really think of was like, oh, it's an Among Us character. My two personal favorite pages were Desi, because uh, I love the chaoticness of what Limbo looks like. And I'm like, yeah, that's what Limbo looks like. It's chaotic, especially probably that part. And um, I also really love the Zoe page. Ooh, let me jump onto yours, Jonah, because the Desi page really was my favorite of the one shots. I did also like Emily just because of the Peach Momo art because oh. Like, oh yeah anytime you get peach momoko i'm like oh sign and me up. i just need to be careful and be clear i know it's the emily page but we need to also say and cat beast. beast oh yes and cat <laughs> beast yeah okay, but the desi art really did it for me because the way they drew limbo here is is a way i haven't really seen since that <sighs> was a 2000s early 2000s magic series where somebody else not Ileana was magic and like this was the limbo that we were presented in. not in trouble if you say her name we love her here she's got the bamf doll and everything i know right i was like yes it, it's it, it really evokes that time where amanda sefton or jermaine sardos was in charge of limbo like and like that amazing miniseries we actually got to see somebody try to run limbo in conjunction with the other uh, realms out there and and like the, just, it was just so amazing to see that. And this this really brought me back to that era because this is exactly how Limbo looked under that. That was the first time I remember thinking that they truly sexualized Nightcrawler's depiction, the covers Ooh. of that miniseries. He is yeah, specifically this. drawn sexually. At, at least he is specifically drawn with a sexual bend as opposed to a Dungeons and Dragons bend. Mm, I don't right? know, though. <laughs> Alan Davis drawing that turtleneck, I feel like sexy without <laughs> oh 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 no no i oh especially when carlos pacheco shaved his head yes oh yeah. oh that that does things to me for the rest of my life no but you make but a like great that point was... about that series and uh yeah. major props to nathan for working in amanda septon and making it ab- absolutely topical <laughs> absolutely <laughs> necessary was like, was like, it was on point actually this time crucial. so like i was proud of myself awesome. absolutely crucial I'm proud of you too <laughs> Guess's page was adorable. For me, my favorite was my sweet boy Calvin. Oh, I, Calvin! He, I, I, I feel so bad for him. He's being put back into the the foster care system, and he's still being haunted by Mister Misery, and it's just heartbreaking so deep dive into the nico archive Uh, kyle you really bring up one of my favorite things about this book in that page i don't know if anybody else here is as freakishly obsessed with marvel man as i am but this rings of kid marvel man this has all of the hallmarks of the sadness that johnny bears through the bulk of the run and there's a dramatic overtone to how you know it's important to note that calvin's eyes are covered 
there's a true sense of the the mind of the character is truly buried in this cloak of sadness the rest of him is purely visible the blackness is all restricted into the background there's a really powerful depth here and it actually in many ways reflects alan moore of all people it's a really powerful page yeah, I'm definitely one of my favorites. Uh, just spooky. And the humanity captured in the face at the top is absolutely one of the necessary elements that creates the contrast of humanity and despair. This notion that the person in the panel is completely normal. That face is so photorealistic in many ways. And then to see Calvin as this comparative nightmare fuel. It really is one of the things that makes this book one of the, the highlights of our slate. Yeah. Oh, I did also love the Zoe page too because oh, like, so I just good. love seeing that relationship between Zoe and Desi blossom. Like I'm like an undead, uh, like a, a zombie and a limbo demon. Sim's daughter of all people. Like sign me the fuck up. Is she a zombie? That's what it is. I wasn't sure if she was like yeah. a snake girl. Yeah. Yep. No, she's a she's a, uh, a Lavoan esque zombie from New Orleans. I also anytime there's Bustos art, I am I am totally yeah. I dig the Bustos. Um, you you mentioned earlier the uh, Desi page. I love Nico Henricon back in. Oh my god! Back in a Doctor it- Strange book, awesome. I, I just I automatically go back to Pride of Baghdad, and I'm just in that moment again. Yeah, I love uh, the sketchiness of all of these. Um, I think the the one that I liked the least was probably the Ramos one, despite him being like the main artist. <laughs> it's it's very emotional, but just the page itself is like extremely simple, and as is the story. This did also introduce two new students. Yes. Oh, did it? So yeah, uh, Howie and Heidi. Oh. This is their introduction here, so oh. I'm assuming that. Why didn't I catch that? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming, I was like, I must have missed them. <laughs> I'm assuming that we will be seeing them in issue 13. Especially with the fact that it does seem like Calvin's story is probably going to be restricted to outside of the school. He'll probably mm-hmm. be running in like two and three page B stories mm-hmm. while stuff is going on at the main school. And they're going to need some new characters because honestly, issue 12 resolved that first uh, issue 12 resolved that first story pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Calvin's going to need to do a lot of running since he killed Dr. Strange. I can only <laughs> fucking dream. Okay. That's what I've, I've, that would be I'm awesome. saying it. I've been saying it. <laughs> 